0: This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly.
1: Hello, and welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 23. Um, welcome back to the show, Parisa and Kyler. Thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for having me. Yes, happy to be here.
1: All right, so we've got a jam-packed show today. We're going to cover a lot of stuff. We're going to have a couple different guests on the show today. Uh, first of all, we're going to have uh, Brian LaCaruba from the Third Stage team. He's going to be on the show talking about general software evaluation and software selection best practices. So we're going to talk about some of his recent client experience and exposures to different ERP systems and how these evaluations have gone and as well as provide some tips for those of you that are about to go through a transformation or through a software evaluation process. So Brian Lickrub will be on the show here in a few minutes and then later in the show we are going to play a clip from our recent uh, Full Throttle uh, workshop that we held just recently here online and it was a session on digital strategy and Stuart Robb who is the VP of our UK office and who's a recurring guest on on transformation ground control, I should say. Um, he will be on the show. We're going to play him a clip talking about digital strategy and providing a digital strategy framework. So we're going to play you a clip from that workshop and build on some of the topics that he covers in that workshop. But before we get into that, um, let's open up the conversation here today with uh, some talk of, of work-life balance. I think that's something that is on a lot of people's minds as we think about how we return back to some sort of normalcy with our work-life uh, balance and trying to find the the right balance between uh, working from home 24-7 versus working in the office, you know, nine to five, five days a week. So what what are some of the things you're finding, Parisa?
2: Right. I mean, talk about a change agent. The past year has been... A means of change for everybody just in how we work, how we function. Um, it started off with everybody going home and turning on their laptops and working from home. Um, and it accelerated the blurring of the lines, if you will, between when you're at work and when you turn it off to be yourself and be at home, right? When you're working in your kitchen, uh, it's a little harder to stop when there's so much to do. And even today, a lot of companies are staying remote and keeping their teams working from home. But even when you go back to the office, you know, I can speak from firsthand experience. It's hard to leave sometimes when you have so much to do. Sometimes you're working 10, 12, 14 hours a day, right? So the question is, is it healthy? And and the EU and I guess a lot of, you know, different European countries are taking this matter a little bit more seriously. And it's it's almost like a mental health play that they're trying to bring in work-life balance regulations into um, the parliament and just, you know, how their employee rights are being handled on that side of the world. So I, I think it's very interesting because there's been situations up to this point, you know, back in 2012, Volkswagen had a way where they could block certain staff members from accessing their emails after a certain point. Um, in the evening and like forcing them to turn it off. Uh, it was in 2017 when France introduced regulations that set tighter boundaries around obligations for remote workers um, and when you start and when you end, you know, when you turn on your computer, when you turn it off. Uh, And then even in 2018, there was a pest control company that was ordered to pay 60,000 euros, which is $71,000 USD for violating those rules in France. So they're taking it seriously. There's a lot of, you know, it's not just a slap on the wrist, it's actual hefty fines that you could pay if you're not being mindful of your employees' work-life balance. So Today, you have the trade Trades Union Congress in the UK that's advocating for their country to follow suit. So you have these companies that are doing it individual, individually. You have some countries who are doing it individually. Um, and now there's a push to make it more of a widespread obligation for companies to encourage their, their employees to turn it on and turn it off. So I guess initially my thought was, that's awesome because everybody needs work-life balance, right? We all need kind of that, that time where we know it's time to turn it off and go eat dinner, go spend time with your family, do something that you enjoy doing just because it, it equates to, you know, good mental health if you're not totally burnt out. So I was excited about it at first, but then I started thinking about the different challenges that could come up. Now, before I get into that, I want to get your guys' opinion. What is your knee jerk reaction? Kyler, I'll start with you. What do you think about that? Do you think it's a good idea to put forth regulation to help protect employees' work-life balance? Um,
3: I mean, I think culture comes in in um, pretty hard here when it comes to the difference. We kind of touched on that last week—the global culture between the EU and then you know more American companies, North American companies. Um, so my my first knee-jerk reaction is it is certainly healthy for culture to have some boundaries when it comes to work-life balance when in, in an organization. But from a regulatory standpoint, it would be very difficult, um, just thinking logistically, to hold certain companies accountable. Because um, you think about different employee status. Um, I used to have a client that we managed thousands of retail stores. And hourly um, employees and what that meant for them and how you kind of work on doing that. So I, I guess my my um, best answer is I would hope that companies know that this is the right thing to do and see that ROI without having to be heavily regulated um, when it comes to kind of government interference in business. But that might just be you know the American in me talking. So. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah. What about you, Eric? What do you think?
1: I don't know. I have I have mixed feelings on it. I mean, there's the part of me that likes to work. I I just like to work a lot. It's it's not like it's a, a grind for me necessarily. Um, I would like to know that I have the freedom to do that if I want to. Um, but to Kyler's point, that could just be the American in me that demands freedom mm-hmm. and wants to do whatever I want to do um, without anyone telling me what to do. So that that's just that part of it. But I do see that you know I do recognize too that uh, for myself personally, if I don't if it goes unchecked, totally I'll I'll work myself until I burn out. And so, but the way I look at it, that's part of my wife's role is to help me make sure I don't go off the rails on that that front, but you know, I, yeah. But now if we were an organization at third stage, you know, our people work hard, but I think we have flexibility and balance to where people have the option to sort of throttle back. And we have people on the team who only work 40 hours a week. We have some that were actually work less, you know, some, Moms and things of that nature that they just are in a position where they don't want to work a certain number of hours, and that's okay too. So, I think it's a matter of, to the point about culture, a lot of it comes down to the company culture. I don't know um, how that would fly in the U.S., but um, you know, I think I think work-life balance is important for most, and I think it's something that certainly should be thought about. I just, I I guess, I'm on the fence or torn on whether or not it should be regulated and fined and all that good stuff.
2: Right, right. I mean, I completely agree. Corporate America has its reputation for a reason I can't imagine that would ever happen here in America where they would put regulations forth to help that but it does I mean if you have happy employees they often produce more right so having that work-life balance it, it could almost play as a competitive advantage but then on the other hand you have people for example I'll take you Eric I mean if you like to work and you want to be at the office 14 hours a day then good for you. And honestly, it, it helps the company too. So could it hurt the a company's competitive advantage as well when you don't have the opportunity to have those kind of workhorses there that are pushing things forward, if that makes sense. Like if you have company A who has 10 out of their 50 employees that stay there and work over time and you know, just like doing it versus company B who doesn't have... That and everybody goes home at five, you know. Could company A inch forward a little bit more? I don't know. You could make a, an argument for both.
1: Yeah, and so there's also the point of just: do you focus on the inputs? You know, the number of hours people are working. Do you you focus on the outputs and the results? So that's the other question. I mean, does it? If I go to the office and I work 14 hours, but you go to the office, presa and you work eight hours and you get more done than I do in 14, then more power to you. I mean, that, I think that's all, the other part of it too is. You know, maybe we're focusing on the wrong things. Maybe we we need to focus on the outputs and not demanding too much output, but also demanding a certain minimum amount of uh, output as well.
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and, And we talk a lot about this on here, that organizational change management and right sizing and developing our teams, right? And relying on our leadership to kind of look at their employees as unique people, humanize them and seeing, you know, you have employee A, that they do their best and thrive in an environment that's completely remote and then you have employee B that really likes that type of structure. Um, And I know we're going to kind of get into this a little bit later with with Stuart, um, but just overall saying what department is this? Are are you a salesperson where you're out in the field and you need more of that kind of interaction to thrive? Or are you um, really in that IT world and you want to, you know, kind of sit down at your desk and grind it out all day? I think that's the biggest piece in there is, is really understanding what's best for your organization.
2: Oh yeah. hundred percent. I feel like if you come forth with a blanket regulation for every company, um, in your country, it, it takes that away, Kyler, like what you said, you can't have, you know, there's positions where they have to be on 24 seven, you know, I don't know if you're running the power plant or something, I don't know, but, there's some positions in some departments where you can't turn it off and there's some where you can turn it off. So I feel like I imagine that would be intertwined in the regulations that they put forth. But the other piece too is, and you mentioned it, Eric, is the conversation between flexibility and work-life balance. To me, I think honestly, having flexibility is more important and it almost equates to work-life balance for me because maybe I can't, you know, complete a project at 2 p.m., but I can complete it at 9 p.m. after the kids go to sleep, you know? So if you have that mandatory turn it off after 6 p.m., that almost takes away the flexibility and it pushes people into having to get their work done between eight and five, for example, rather than being able to make it fit within their life. So that's another trade-off as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think the... A really good point is the the type of worker, you know, if you're an office worker where it's a knowledge-based type of job, then sure, maybe it's more focused on the outputs and you have more flexibility there. But I could see the value of regulating or there being fines for someone whose job is very time-based or location-based. So like to your point about someone running a power plant or someone in a call center, for example, or someone on a shop floor. Um. In most cases, you physically need to be there for a certain amount of time to do your job, or be on call, or whatever the case may be. So, I think in those cases, it, maybe that's where you, you focus on. Let's not abuse that, or not. Let's not step outside the bounds of someone who you know it does have to be in the certain spot for eight hours straight, or ten hours straight, or whatever. So, I think it's. I think flexibility and adapting to different situations is probably the key thing there.
2: Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's interesting to see what's going to happen uh, and if these new regulations uh, stick or if it's just another, you know, advocate, I guess. So curious to see what happens. I mean, when you're looking at possible regulations like this coming down the pipeline, you could think about your strategy going forward in the sense of how can I intertwine work-life balance into what we do operationally? Does it affect the types of software we would pick? Uh, you know, it it plays into the bigger picture of the conversation.
1: Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Well, good. Well, that's an interesting topic. I was not aware of that pending regulation and that's certainly helpful and and relevant to our European audience and uh, our our consulting team in Europe as well. So I appreciate you bringing up a a topic of global interest like that. Um, So we're going to come back and we're going to talk with uh, Brian LaCuribbe. We're going to have our first guest on today, Brian LaCuribbe, who, Uh, We've had him on the show in the past, and he's been with the company for a long time. He's actually uh, our first team member that we joined outside the founders, you know, the core of us that founded the company. He was the first person that came on board. Um, So he's been with Third Stage now for about three years and um, was recently promoted as well. So we're going to have him on the show talking about software evaluation and selection and some of the best practices and lessons he's seen with some of our clients right now. So we'll be right back. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control.
4: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks.
1: Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 23. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Parisa and Kyler as well. And uh, those of you listening, you can always find us every Wednesday. We put out new episodes on YouTube, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music, all the usual suspects for where you might find podcasts. So be sure to check us out and subscribe, leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback as well. So, our next guest I'm excited to have on, our first guest, I should say, on today's show is Brian LaCaruba. He's been uh, a frequent guest on the show. And we're gonna have him on today to talk about software evaluation and selection. That's a service that we commonly provide to our clients and something that Brian is very involved with with many of our clients as we speak. And so what I wanted to do is have him on the show and talk about what some of the lessons are that he's seeing what some of the findings are with recent clients and evaluations that he's been through what some of the trends are he's seeing in the market along those lines. So Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. Happy to be a part of this today and to talk about software selections. Yeah, this is fun stuff. Something that you and I both have done quite a bit of over the years, and excited to sort of get your take on some of the lessons you've had and uh, some of the recent experiences and past experiences with with our clients. Um, before we jump into talking about software evaluation and how to select the right software for your organization, whether it's ERP software, CRM, human capital management, supply chain management, uh, e-commerce, whatever sort of technology you might be evaluating or selecting for your organization, um, which is the main topic we'll, we'll get to today. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about your background, Brian. Sure
5: thing, Eric. So uh, I'm Brian locke Manager of Strategy and Transformation at Third Stage. And I have been, over the last 15 years, really just worked a range of different roles and uh, the kind of different sides of the equation and different uh, big technology projects. So I, it really I came to it through a process improvement background i got a black belt uh, six sigma and did a lot of varying uh, process improvement activities worked with business process management systems quite a bit uh, and then got involved in project management on major technology initiatives and i've been on the side of the uh on basically kind of the vendor side of uh, implementing technology as well as on the client side and i've um, really just done a range of different roles some pretty technical although i'm not definitely not a pure tech. Uh, technologist myself, but I've uh, been pretty involved with the technology teams, and uh, but always with that stream of process improvement, project management, those things are sort of weave throughout it as well as uh, business intelligence, which was my concentration uh, in grad school when I got my master's. And uh, really over, over the time uh, for coming to third stage, I did a lot of uh, selections in, in uh, various technologies, including business process management and um, ECM content management systems, work with CRM systems, as well as uh, you know, I've been doing a lot of them in the ERP space and done them for uh, a range of different size clients. I really like working uh, with uh, just a variety of industries, whether they're heavy manufacturers or ones who just need financials. where are ranging from billion dollar organizations to one I recently did working with a, a client who's got nine staff total. So, just really like working with that range of different organizations and different sectors and uh, bringing that to bear throughout the selection process.
1: Nice. Good deal. So, pretty pretty broad background and a lot of different experiences that you you bring to the table here. So, excited to dive into it. Well, uh, and as we're getting into the questions here, and like I said, anyone listening here live, feel free to chime in with questions or topics you want to cover. and also, if you don't mind, maybe uh, just chime in and let us know where you're listening in from today. I'd love to hear where the audience is and uh, just get a feel from where everyone is. So maybe just put in the chat box where you're from. That would be, uh, help help us understand the audience a little bit better here today. Um, so just jumping in here and, and maybe setting the context for, for the discussion here today, um, let's start with you know talking about the software evaluation process in general. And, and why is it so important if we just sort of back up and um, think about, just software evaluation and selection, why is that process so important to organizations that are about to go through some sort of transformation?
5: Yeah, I view it as kind of a two-part answer, Eric, and, and the first is kind of the obvious answer of which there's a lot of different software out there and navigating through the available software packages and uh, types of technologies is really important to be able to set the organization on the right path. And um, there's there's so many options and they're changing uh, quickly all the time and vendors are making advances and acquiring companies and moving into different spaces. Of course, just being able to navigate that and get something that's the right fit. But uh, I, I think it's even more important from another standpoint, which is that um, you can, You'll often have a lot of things that can work for you a lot of different software systems but the the process itself and going through this evaluation before you pick the software is super important to drive alignment within the organization on what matters and to really look at what are the goals of what you're trying to achieve with the technology and making sure that you're whatever you're getting you're getting for the right reasons and that's even more important than having the right tool So you have a lot of things that can do things in a very effective way for you but if you're businesses, uh, business, your organization is not trying to change in that way that the software might drive you towards it could, it could put you in a bad spot. So having that, having that alignment and common direction and getting those involved in the process to really draw out unstated assumptions and needs is critical.
1: Yeah, That's a great point. So it's a it's more than just choosing the software, then is, is what you're saying. It's also the sort of this secondary benefit, which is a really important one, which is getting aligned, getting on the same page and sort of defining what that vision is for the project.
5: Quickly. Yeah, and then knowing once you once you have the tool and the vendor and the tech and the team in place you're going to work with that they've been that that you've assessed them on the right basis. You know, we've we've worked with some clients who've gone through and they've picked a they've picked a system based on what someone else recommended to them or based on a very fast evaluation process. And then as they just went through the implementation, just find that um, yeah, maybe a great system, but it's not. These aren't the types of things we're trying to do. So,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely. And so when you when you look at the evaluation process um, in, in sort of, you know, with our client experience and, and the examples or, or case studies of, of situations you've been in helping clients select the software, what have some of the biggest challenges been that, that you think organizations face when evaluating potential systems in the market?
5: One of the one of the first ones to start with is even just knowing what categories of systems to look at. And I saw so this one of the blogs you just published in the last few days, Eric, but around the difference, uh, knowing do we need an ERP system or a CRM or an HCM or a BPMS? Or looking across those different categories and even knowing where to start, how do you think about the foundation of what you're trying to do? Uh, being being able to assess and know what's out there and what kind of things that's going to help enable you in, in changing. So uh, a lot of organizations, depending on how much you know, If you have a lot of people who have been around, you've been using a legacy system for a lot of years and your people have been using that system and they haven't been in a lot of other companies that use other technology simply based it on the frame of what do you use uh, today? How do I want that thing to work better as opposed to being able to have that broader look at? What are some of the other capabilities we could be looking to do? What are some of the questions we need to ask that we're not asking? So uh, I think that's a big one. Another big one too is just being able to um, get a really clear and decisive picture from the vendors on the things that they need to know. You know, Every vendor is uh, happy to put out any canned material or do a, a demo that they've done a thousand times that is done in the way they want. They show you all the things that look good in their product and all the ways that others might like it, but it doesn't necessarily, um, unless you have something that's really targeted in a process that draws out your key requirements and what you need to do to be able to um, put those in front of the vendor in a way that really forces them to show you their their product warts and all. And with the things that may be harder for them to do is a a key challenge. And
1: yeah, those would
5: be two of the big ones we see.
1: Yeah. But that first one's pretty interesting. And I think it's, it's one that it seems like a lot of organizations don't think about, which is, you know, that whole point about what kind of software are we really looking for? It -hmm. seems like a lot of organizations sort of dive into just an assumption that, Hey, we're going to go find an ERP system or, um, you know, we're going to look at one myopic part of our business and look for you know warehouse management or e-commerce or whatever, and then our other organizations just don't know. And so I think it's really important to educate yourself on what those different systems are, and recognizing that it all doesn't have to be the same system. You know, you might be looking at you know multiple systems, and I want to come back to that here in a few minutes. Maybe we we'll talk about the whole best of breed versus mm-hmm. single ERP um, as we unpack this a little bit more. But um, in the meantime, though, b- before we get to that, what what are some of the when when you think about the evaluation process and everything that goes into it? What do you think the most important parts of a of a software selection are
5: yeah I mean, I mean the first thing is to not start with the software it's to start with your strategy and start with your business processes so really understand where are you trying to go as an organization what are the changes you need to make what do you expect to see to do over the next three to five years what are your big challenges now uh and make sure that is driving the direction in which you're trying to go and then being able to really take that to the next the next step, which is to drill that down into understanding your current state business processes and uh, tying that back. You know, we always start when we do selections. We we do a strategy workshop, but then the the bulk of the the starting point on it is a series of business process workshops where we we drill in. And it's not even getting to extreme levels of depth on every process to select software. You don't need to know. Uh, every every click everything that everyone's doing at every step of the way but you do need to have a good overall foundation of what are your what are your end-to-end processes how do they big part is how do they connect uh, what are the handoffs uh, between different departments as you go trying not to look at this just in your existing silos uh, but looking at it from the standpoint of how does your business tie together end to end and those different elements uh, connect so that that's really the key of the foundation of it all and once you have that everything you're going to be looking at from a technology base, perspective is not based on just what is apparently the best system or the one that other people like, but it's going to be figuring out the one that's right for you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Makes total sense. And it's, it's easy to worry too much about what other companies are doing or, you know, what your peers are doing or whatever, without really thinking about, well, you know, what is it we need and focusing on those, those aspects of it? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I
5: want to add one more to that too, which is just from the from the vendor perspective of uh, and and how you move the project. You know, vendors are may have certain sort of certain approaches of how they want to take it, or tell you that it's going to follow along this step or that step. But you really want to be able to make sure you're driving this at a pace that's that's right for you. You don't want it to um, drag out unnecessarily, but you also don't want to move it to some um, artificial timeline that someone else is setting. You want to be able to look at this and figure out the uh, the right steps to be able to um, move it along effectively do what you need to do to understand what your needs are and to be able to, to drive the vendors to to get you those answers uh, and to do it in a way that's giving the team the, uh, enough time
1: to absorb without getting stuck
5: and over analyzing
1: right yeah makes total sense so just to build on uh, my last question a little bit this is actually a question from the audience uh, from someone watching on youtube uh, this is from zishan on YouTube. yes, what is the importance of business requirement documentation before evaluation of software applications?
5: Yeah, it's critically important. And although I'd say, uh, again, when we talk about when when third stage gets involved in a project, that's the first step that we do in this. We consider it a step of the evaluation as opposed to in a way something you're doing before. But you definitely do want to have a set of business requirements uh, that's really driving what you're looking at before you decide what systems you're going to bring into the picture uh, and sometimes there may be systems that are considered for various reasons if you're part of a larger organization and your parent company is using a certain system and there's a it's a desire to get you on that that's going to be on your list regardless of whether or not it's the right answer you want to start considering it um, there may be an upgrade to your legacy system you'll consider as well but so there, there's various considerations there but you'll always want to uh, Really drive those requirements out first, and get uh, get a good list of what it is you're looking for, uh, and, and have that be the foundation of how you're looking at the systems you bring into the picture.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I always tell clients too that you know if you're if you know you're going to go through a ERP or digital transformation, whatever it is, whatever type of software you're you're looking to deploy, you're going to have to define your requirements at some point. You know, mm-hmm. at the very least, you'd have to define them to build the software or to configure the software. So you might as well get the benefit of that, of helping you evaluate and find the right software. So that alone, I think is a, is a you know, sort of a, an argument for defining those requirements up front. And certainly, um, you know, just making sure you find the right software, because there's so many different systems out there and so many different options, it's easy to find a mismatch, which can make it very difficult, if if not impossible to, to implement effectively.
5: Yeah. and And sometimes there are Unique requirements to you, kind of niche items that are really important to your organization that may not um, be that may not be very common. That you just have to get into enough detail to be able to get it. And again, you don't need to know every every step of every operation, but sometimes there are really critical items that you just need a software to do. And if you don't if you don't have those, those can. And it's not to say they other uh, systems won't have a way to work around that or to find a way to make it happen, but um, you really want to know what those key unique drivers are and. and now, that's a big part of it, too, is being able to identify not just the things that you need, but what are the things you need that are uh, going to be out of the ordinary, a little bit harder for uh, or uh, other vendors to meet and trying to make sure that you are asking about those in the right way.
1: Yeah. So how do you just building on that a little bit, just as a follow up, how do you um, balance the how do you find that right balance of knowing how much detail to get into and how, you know, how exhaustive you want that requirements list to be uh, versus You know, you don't want to get in caught up in analysis paralysis and have so many requirements that your head starts to spin and you can't really (laughs) differentiate the different options out there. How do you how do you find that right balance?
5: Yeah, from our perspective, you know, we try to take that. We we've got um, kind of some guidelines we look at when we when getting into workshops based on the size of organization, the number of people in the process to try to and and the way that we go about doing those of just lengths of time. And I don't want to throw numbers out here because it's kind of tied into the specifics of how we do it, but You know, we we do try to look at just getting through within a reasonable period of time. You know, we're talking days or or weeks, depending on the size of the organization, not spending months getting into processes of um, or in some cases, it can be a day or less than a day, depending on a small organization. But really just trying to um, make sure you're running through and you're getting that end to end. And as we facilitate those, we'll we'll ask the questions that are helping uh, guide to, tell me what you do, and, and as, as someone may drill into, hey, I've got this pain point, well, tell me a little bit more about that, but may, maybe stop before someone may get into, well, these, this is all the all the things I have to do with this spreadsheet to move it around and to manipulate the data. Um, but we'll wanna know kind of what are the key drivers things like that. So it, it's a balance in trying to get through workshops, but one of the, the key principles we try to follow too is like, let, let's make sure we're at least getting that end-to-end picture. And then if there are areas we need to drill into, we've at least gotten enough of an understanding of that and we can always come back to it and make sure to spend some more time uh, on it with maybe a little focused discussion on a certain topic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Makes, makes total sense.
6: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn a third stage consulting group. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com.
1: You sort of triggered a a follow-up question or it leads into another question I had for you, which is, you know, you you talk about um, buy-in, you know, just getting buy-in and sort of that the organizational ownership of the decision. Not that you necessarily need a unanimous agreement on you know what the priorities are or what kind of software you're going to deploy, but it it is there is a uh, something to be said for the buy-in that you get by involving different people and different stakeholders in the evaluation process. But sort of building on that thread and in, in, in looking at change management in general, how do you how do we typically and how do our teams with our clients typically address change management as part of the Evaluation process and, and why why are we thinking about change management this early in the, in the process when we haven't even picked the software yet?
5: Yeah, I, I mean there's there's two parts of how I look at the change management part of the conversation. The first, as you talked about, is just the the process itself, and tying to that first answer I gave at the top of this is the um, the the act of aligning and understanding what people's expectations are is a, is a big part of that. Um, and and you want to a, a good way to think about this is is if there's any potential conflict coming in this, if there's any ways in which people are pulling different directions, it's going to happen at some point. You want to draw that out as quickly as possible and and uh, figure that out up front and know if people are, are looking at things in a different way. And It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just people have different experiences and expectations. You want to be able to uh, capture that early and deal with it and deal with it before you make some of the big decisions and start setting expectations and budgets and things along those lines. So um, it's really important to go through that early. Um, it's actually one of the one of the clients I'm working with right now. We're having a lot of a lot of really great discussions. It's been taking a little longer on the selection, but it's been a good thing because it's been uh, helping draw out. It's a unique organization that does. Um, a number of different functions that don't normally get pulled together in one organization even for a small organization so we've been working through with them of uh, what are the expectations and still trying to work through to align around that so it's an important thing to to do and, and to help guide and understand what are the what are the areas you're going to need to support and you know, so so the act itself of going through the evaluation is important from change management of, of just driving out those expectations. But we also like to use it as a starting point to, even for those who aren't as deeply involved in the selection process, uh, to to work with um, whether it's sending out a survey to the entire organization or doing some focus groups or just starting to get some communication out and to just get a pulse of where the organization stands and the people, you know, because the people who are making the de- the decisions will be. Uh, ideally, involved and, and it's affected by their teams, but they're not necessarily ones who are working in the system as much day to day as some of the other people who you're going to want to uh, make sure to know what are their pain points and challenges and what is their view on uh, what their past experience has been in the organization. So, we often, one of our, our most common tools is starting with an organizational readiness assessment and a survey that goes out to people up front to help start gauging that and to start aligning our other activities around that.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, that's an important point because I think so many organizations think, well, you know, we'll worry about change management later. We'll we'll get to that once we figure out what the software is, then we'll figure out how we're gonna train people or communicate or whatever. But there's so much more that that should happen early on. And that's a whole other it's a whole nother thread or rabbit hole we could go down and spend an, an easily an hour on that just that topic alone. Yes. But it's a it's a good point um about you know, sort of maybe scratching the tip of the iceberg here in the evaluation process for sure. Um, so we're getting a few other questions. It, it's funny, right before we, we went live, I, I know I was telling you, Brian, that uh, we don't get, we usually don't get many questions on YouTube for whatever reason. But today we're getting a ton of questions on YouTube. So um, just appreciate the, the, the engagement here. So another question uh, that I wanted to cover here is, are, are you setting goals and KPIs for a project to check the business value from the investment? And how do you get to those metrics?
5: yeah great great question that's one that we do it can vary how we do that depending on the organization that is something that's uh beneficial to do up front you are some organizations the the level of maturity on this uh, of what data you actually have access to and how you can measure that is pretty limited to be able to do that up front and um so uh, we we worked with another client we had this discussion about kpis and setting a business case up front and We really came down to the answer of like, we can't give you any of those numbers. Let's just talk about what some of the things are that we should be measuring and look at those as goals of what we're going to try to do in this. Uh, In other cases, you may have organizations that have a lot of really good data and Know that there's room for improvement in that. In which case, then we are going to we are going to look at those and start to set some uh, targets. We have we have access to some benchmarking materials uh, we can use, uh, or uh, you know, if you have good connections within your industry, for example, there are a lot of industry trade groups sometimes where that type of information is shared to be able to understand: Are you maybe keeping taking longer to turn over your inventory, or are you spending more on your overall IT staff than others are? And, those things may have good reasons that are tied to the way you do business, or they may be things that are just because they haven't got the level of focus and attention and looking at those numbers that need some areas and need some improvement. So, um, yeah, it's a really, it's it's a very valuable part of the process, I guess, is the way I'd put it. But it's something if. You don't want it to hold you up either if you don't have good data to say oh we don't even know how to measure this so maybe we can't proceed because it's not going to be worth the money like you, you can still you can still find ways to identify what the benefits are going to be and even if you can't quantify them as cleanly as you'd like to to, to have a path forward
1: yeah yeah and it's a great point I, I i think the question's a great one too because so many organizations especially nowadays with with the transition to the cloud and how there's so many companies and organizations that are uh, for being forced, for lack of a better word, they're being forced or they have no choice, but to move to a new system, either because uh, their old system is being sunset or, um, you know, they just want to be on a newer technology. There's just a lot of organizations that are making that leap and they're going to do it no matter what. And I think a lot of times companies fall into that pitfall of, um, hey, we don't need a business case because we, we know we're going to do it. We have no choice. So why build a business case? Why focus on business benefits? It's already been approved or whatever. So, do you see that too or is that a dynamic that we struggle with with some of our other clients
5: yes in in those cases the business case can be more about um again it's that that word i've been using a lot alignment and making sure that the direction of what you're trying to achieve with it is clear so as you go forward and you have to make decisions those are tied to where you expect to see benefits so that business case doesn't necessarily need to be something you put in front of the board and you can justify to a specific rate of return of what you're going to be getting out of this project, but you do want it to be something that, um, when you come to a crucial point in the project and you find some some capability that's going to require maybe a change in process or something to be done differently than you were anticipating, or that you may have to just make a trade off of one choice or another around something that you know. How are you going to make that decision? What's going to be the driver of what that's going towards? And the business case can be a really important tool to help you understand. Oh, this is let's remember that we decided together that these were the most important benefits we're hoping to gain out of this project and that that can drive that decision because sometimes it may not be the most clear financial one it might be that it's something that's going to really uh, support uh, something that your customers desire but that you can't quantify or it's something that your employees really need and the the morale um, hit from not being able to improve this one really painful process for them could be really really bad and that's something you want to address so there's um, a lot of different factors that can go into it
1: yeah it's a great point. It's almost like a I, I almost view business cases as a not just a justification tool. it's also you know benefits realization tool to that helps you you know sort of optimize and measure what results you actually get to your point but it's also I think you're alluding to the fact that it's also a, a project governance tool during the implementation so you use it as a way to get those decisions like you were saying and you know good examples you know someone within the organization it happens probably. 99% of the time, 99% of the implementations we're involved with, you get someone in the organization that wants to customize the software. They they find something they don't like about it, or that they feel like should be customized to make it a better fit. And a lot of times you're sort of flying blind or shooting in the dark, trying to make that decision. Of well, you know, we have a zero customization policy, so no, we're not going to do it. You know, that's a lot of the mindset that you hear. Or you get the other stream where companies are just customizing to death, and it's it's creating a lot of risk and problems. Most organizations, you know, struggle to find that balance. Like, and this is just one example. By the way, this whole thing, but um, that's just an example of how a business case that can be sort of your your guiding light or whatever you want to call it that allows you to make decision in the context of what how it's going to help us and what kind of ROI are we going to get from, you know, from the if we do or don't make that decision.
5: Yeah. Uh, absolutely the customization piece too is one that uh you know it's pretty common organizations will go in with you know we want to limit customizations but um there's oh you're right there's always going to be questions coming up of well should we customize here or not how do you think about that and how do you um i don't even necessarily want to say put some teeth behind the, the limiting customization but you at least need to be able to have some kind of a process that people can be comfortable in, where you're making those decisions, and if you have to tell someone no, you have to live with some of what this may seem like a limitation to you. That you have a good uh, mechanism for being able to make that decision in a fair way, and then to, and in some cases, you may choose not to do it because it's actually not better for the organization because that customization would be entrenching a bad practice that just happens to be the way you do it now. But in some cases, it might be an improvement. It's just not worth the long-term maintenance and and risk uh, that gets incurred from doing the customization.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and having that business case will help you help you come to that conclusion or come to whatever conclusion makes makes sense for your organization. Um, so another question here from YouTube um, is what it actually say it's shifting gears a little bit to look at not just the software. And so maybe to back up before I get to this question, there's there's the really two major components of a software evaluation, or at least there should be there's the software itself. And then there's the, the implementation, you know, assessing you know, you assess the level fit of the software and then you assess the implementation cost and what that's going to look like and all that good stuff. So when we think about implementations and that aspect of a software evaluation, um, how, how does that maybe tell us a little bit about how that works? You know, how do we go through that process with, uh, with the implementation of evaluation? And then I'll get to the the real question that the person had, uh, I need to as well.
5: Yeah. So there's, this is, uh, you know, and just all the things we talked about—requirements and uh, everything else—are kind of evolving throughout into different levels of detail. So, as you look at the implementation, you know, you're going to start. You'll you may have some baseline of expectation of what we hear just from initial conversations, and then you send out an RFP to vendors. They're going to give you back something with an expectation. This is what's going to cost. This is how much customization. This is uh, the timeline. It's going to be, and all—all all of those are—they're uh, guesses. They're—they're going to be grounded in some reality usually, if a but, but you know vendors taking that in good faith it's most of the time are going to be doing it you're going to be having something that's somewhat based in reality but you you also need to um that that'll get uh, honed in on quite a bit more as you go through and there are a lot of assumptions that are just built into that we have to look at part of it is what are the what's the level of effort and expectation from the client team to be able to uh, engage in that process you know if the, if an S- if an estimate is based on the fact of you're gonna have you know 10 people full-time devoted to this project and there's not no plans to backfill and to put people into that and people may be allocated a significant amount less, that's gonna affect the way we look at the implementation. Depending on how the vendor does it, it could have a significant impact on costs. If that's the case, um, you've gotta look at the complexity of the different modules that are part of it. You know, And again, an RFP is gonna come back and are, are a responsive proposal with, um, some degree of clarity on that but that'll get honed in on a lot more as you go through demos and vet out are each of these uh, modules uh, capable as needed and where is it going to fit in with the existing technology environment? So that's the other really big part of this too is you're likely going to have some integrations to other systems so you really have to account for what are those uh going to be factored in who's going to do them so you know a big theme in it is looking at your internal Impact on it because another area too, and sorry, I'm kind of going on with a bunch of different areas here for you to respond to Arc But uh, data is another big piece of this in the implementation, and that's generally the vendors aren't taking responsibility for that. The vendors will give you templates to load into their system. They're going to help you with um, actually getting those loaded into the system in a lot of cases, but you're going to be responsible for pulling your data and validating it and ensuring that it's right and cleansed and that can be a really big effort on top of it so there, there's tasks that you as a project team are going to need to uh, take and own and make sure that you can commit to those things in it as well so you know those are all just a bunch of pieces that factor into how we look at the implementation and, and you know we keep working through those and we want to make sure even though You'll keep learning more as you get into the implementation. You want to make sure by the time you're ready to sign a statement of work that you have a uh, a handle on all of these uh, to a, to a certain degree to be able to to plan around it and feel confident and um, that you've right sized the project.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's good. Great, great points there. I mean, there's so much to think about. And I think, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, I agree with you that the implementation partners, whether it's a reseller, the software vendor themselves or a system integrator. Um, They they tend to do these estimates generally in good faith, but I think the challenge is they don't know what they don't know, first of all. Um, Second of all, so much of what causes delay and so much of the effort that goes into a project is actually the stuff that happens outside the scope of what a a software vendor or implementer would do. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned data as an example, we talked about change management. Those are two examples of things that those two things are usually not done or they're not done well by most system integrators or, or implementers but those are the things that will determine how successful your project is or isn't it also determines how long your project is going to take and largely determines how much it's going to cost. So when you're, it's not just a matter of evaluating that piece, you know, the vendor's piece or the, the implementer's piece of the implementation, you also have to look at sort of the, the overall scenario, you know, what does the overall implementation timeline look like? And does it make sense for your organization? Even if the vendor thinks it makes sense, ultimately you, you sort of have to sanitize it or rationalize it for your organization.
5: Yeah. And, um, recognizing how do you need to support the change and what does that uh, timeline need to look like for your people you know one of one of the clients i'm working with now is a public sector client i'm involved in supporting their implementation and doing a lot of change management work with them and they've got a timeline that's probably twice what a similar level of functionality might be for uh, a similar business even though of course they're doing things that are um, things like public works and whatnot that aren't necessarily corollary to what you might see in a business but um it's just uh important from the perspective of how they work with things to be able to uh, really give give the time to it's very hands-on with the vendor to to work with them they are the vendor is working with them in this case on data uh on, on documenting the procedures and, and um, building out a lot of the processes throughout workshops and then we to have multiple rounds of uh continued workshops as they go through this Uh, process, because that's what they're going to need to be able to get everyone comfortable with the solution and and to build that in. So uh, and in this case, we had a different vendor who was a finalist proposed a a much shorter timeline, which wasn't a a wrong proposal, they could have done it in that time. But um, and we could have worked with them to extend that. So it wasn't as if it, you know, it it was wrong. It was just uh, in the end, that the timeline we needed to go with was one that allowed for much more of that time to be able to uh, give everyone across all the departments the opportunity they're going to need.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, along those same lines, it's, you know, that that internal decision making and sort of the internal dynamics that can drive the duration upbound and, you know, what those dynamics are. Um, you know, the other aspect is, is a lot of times we find that the implementation duration and the implementation itself is oftentimes affected by how well you prepare for it and all the stuff you do up front. Mm-hmm. So if you we find that ironically that the people that just jump right in and start implementing right away when they have selected the software, they tend to take longer just because it, it's so messy. Right. You know, you just get so much. You mentioned alignment before or misalignment. They're just the team's not aligned yet. Even though we've gone through this evaluation exercise, you still have a lot more alignment to do to get on the same page and to get a foundation and a blueprint in place before you move forward with the implementation. But the vendors and implementation partners typically try to rush you you know, because it, it's in their financial best interest to rush you for you to start sooner. So you end up you know, a lot, a lot of companies end up jumping right in, thinking that they're actually going faster, when in fact they're 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 going to end up slowing things down in, in a lot of ways. So that's the tricky part of that evaluation, I I would think. Uh, you know, as far as evaluating the implementation aspect of the of the proposals that you get back.
5: Yeah, and it, it's just being able to look at what are the risks specifically, and how are those being dealt with to be able to build out the implementation plan.
1: Yeah, so back to the. Um, uh, person on on YouTube here, um, it looks like Kumar on YouTube asked what kind of contract should be written for ERP implementation projects. Um, So I'm not, I know you're not a legal expert, you're not a lawyer, but maybe just talk a a little bit about how, you know, how, how should the, you know, RFP or, or, you know, maybe just dive in Mm -hmm. a little bit more, what are some of the things you should be looking at, you know, as, as part of that, that process?
5: Yeah, And thanks for starting with that disclaimer that I was going to have to give anyway. So uh, definitely, there are areas from, yeah, a, a legal perspective, you're going to want to have someone with that expertise to look at. But uh, there, there is a lot you can look at from the perspective of just operationally of what's getting included. So I mean, scoping, scoping is huge. You know, again, when you get when you do an RFP, you're going to have some sense of that degree of scope, but uh, you're really going to have to use the process from rfp through demos and through building out a statement of work to be able to have a much clearer uh sense of what's coming into that and making sure um you know you need to be comfortable that they what they've defined in there is uh, what the vendor has defined as the scope that you've worked with them on that that you fully understand it that you have any questions they've been answered uh and that the process for any changes is one that you're very clear and comfortable with and understand I, i mean that that's a big part of it of course change orders change control of some kind or Almost always going to come up. So you you want to know uh, there's clarity in that. You want to know that um, are are there you know are there penalties for you if you're taking time to decide on something? How to, how does the pace of the implementation and the approach towards it fit in with uh, how you're going to function as an organization? You know some uh, some implementations are designed to really just uh, push you along and make sure you either you make a decision quickly or you're going to keep uh, paying anyway. And that's something that may be fine and may be the discipline you need to. To keep pushing forward but you have to be ready as an organization for something like that you need to make sure you know all those other things i was talking about before whether it's data or change management or anything like that you're you're looking for the things that aren't in the agreement as well as what is are you being trained on um your processes or just getting um you know canned material about how the system works and then you have to figure out how to build it into that so knowing all of the things that you need to pick up as an organization is important and then looking at things from a cost perspective uh, beyond just that first contract, you know, what what's the potential for annual increases after? Are those capped? Looking at things like uh, if you were to add additional users, if it's a user-based license cost, what is the process for that? What are the costs for that? Are those are those built in? Or are you going to end up paying through the nose? I mean, a lot of vendors will will work with you on that. Sometimes you have to ask for it. Um, you if you do. Do something like a major acquisition. That's probably not going to be planned for in your contract, and that wouldn't be fair for the vendors to necessarily be able to commit to something that could fundamentally change your business to that scope. But you can plan for the expected types of changes and build that into your contract.
1: Right. Yeah. Makes makes sense. It's good good advice. Um, so another question here, um, and I'm not. I'm still trying to digest it. Maybe between the two of us, we can make sure we're hitting the mark on this. But uh, the question is from Frederick on YouTube. Yes, um, I've often seen RFPs having three options on requirements, fit, customize, or no. With platform capabilities like Microsoft, uh, platform as a service, slash power platform, Infor, Ion, and other capabilities, how to respond, question mark.
5: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's an interesting question. As I look at, you know, we have standard RFP templates, we'll always adjust them to what the client needs and work in their requirements, but that that's generally just of how we do the RFPs and we have um, the vendors answer to those. But those answers often do have some gray areas um, that you have to address. Because, because the term, if you just take the term, you know, customization, for example, is the way we put it on there. Does this require customization? Well, a customization can mean very different things in the way platforms have evolved now in, in the old school uh, on-premise model. And I don't want to say there are good systems that can do it in that model now, but in, in let's say, the way traditionally that's been done, if you have an on-premise system, you could say a customization is just some code you build on top of it to support this need, and you, you have that in your system, which can make it more difficult to upgrade but or not. but. Sometimes it can mean something through a third party uh, that you you know you can go to some type of app store type experience to be able to get some enhanced functionality to add on to it. It could be different modules that have different costs associated, and you may just have to say, "Oh, I like the base package within this software, but we need we need something more that's just an additional cost on top of it." Um, I mean, from that's one of the things we do when we evaluate an RFP. We look through those answers and um, make sure that what we're getting from the vendors is something we feel is comfortable that they're answering it in the same way, uh, that you know, the meaning of this one saying it is a third party and this one saying they're not is is something that kind of means the same thing so that we're putting them on the same page. So uh, yeah, I don't know if I if I answer that exactly, but just kind of that's my thought process on how we look at the different types of answers that can be given in what the software can do.
1: Yeah.
7: download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success.
1: Yeah, and I think that the tricky part of it, and I think this this gets to a a follow-up question that that same person had that Frederick had on YouTube. He said, if it's not a customization, so in other words, it's something that the software can do without customization. Should there be other options other than yes/no? You know, some you know low code. You know, he mm-hmm. you, you gives example of low code uh, types of need or BI bolt on some sort of integration, that sort of thing. So it's not. I think that's where it's, it gets tricky. Is it's it, the gray area that you mentioned? It's not just yes/no, because in most cases, you know, with most requirements with most vendors, you're going to get mostly yeses. You know, it's going to be a lot of yeses and. I know we've had rfp responses from multiple vendors from the same client same situation um where you get like 98 98 or 98 99 percent of the responses from all the vendors are like yes we can do that but it's not a matter of yes can they do it it's it's how well do they do it and i think that's that gray area you're talking about that they can be difficult to navigate or to assess in those responses
5: yeah, and third party is always one of the ones we put on there as well as an option. We want to know and it doesn't mean it's a bad thing to use some kind of bolt-on or whatever form of third party it's gonna be, but it's something you wanna make sure you're very clear on what those are and then you can have discussions on the nature of that integration, what the costs are associated to that, who's gonna implement it, is that something that they may be recommending this one, but they don't support it at all, or is it something like, oh yeah, it's a partner we work with all the time, we can implement it for you, but we just have this additional license cost or how tightly integrated is it those types of things so we always want to want to know that and make sure going into it that you're very clear on uh, what that what that differentiation is so yeah I, I we, we don't uh, tend to do them as fit or no fit as much as what's what's the type of fit is it out of the box is it a configuration is it a customization is it the third party or, or that type of thing
1: yeah yeah and you know speaking of bi and and uh, you know we also talked about you mentioned data earlier too so about data bi. Uh, how does how should business intelligence in general, you know reporting data analytics, business intelligence sort of that whole bucket of stuff yeah, how does that factor in or should it factor into an evaluation process?
5: yeah, I mean it needs to tie in from the standpoint of your strategy and where you're trying to go and one of the big reasons for system implementations typically is going to be you need more reliable data that's more integrated uh, throughout. Um, and whether that is all in one system or whether that's saying you need to have your disparate systems connected in a more clear way where your data you have uh, a clear source uh, system of record for each piece of data and you know your single source of truth for whatever it is even if uh, it could be uh, different for some some aspects of your data may live in one system some may live in another you need to you're you're really trying to drive that out of this so um, understanding what your data needs are what you're trying to drive from a business intelligence perspective are there often we're going to hear in these when we do these strategy sessions leaders saying things like i, I want to be able to make a decision this way or get this type of report but i can't so i make do with something else and uh or it could be people on on the uh day-to-day operations who have that same challenge they're flying blind because they don't have the information that they need so understanding those uh needs of what you're trying to drive out from an information and decision making perspective and aligning what you're trying to do uh with that is really critical so just um and then the tools themselves you know that that's another piece of it Um, if we're looking at kind of a straight ERP project where everything you're trying to do is, is for the most part contained within that ERP system. You want to be evaluating from the perspective of how how well does that system report and give you access to the data you need and make it easy for you to draw out other insights and build your own kind of custom reports out of it. But you may also have to look at you know we, you have a technology stack of other systems as well that need to play into this that are not going to go away and be in one system. So then you really have to be looking at how are we going to um, connect that data? Is it through um, do we have an existing BI tool or using something like a Tableau and you're aggregating all your data in other places and you want to be able to see that in one place or do you have some other means that you're trying to uh, pull that together? Um, it, so knowing kind of where you're starting from, where you're trying to get to from using having better data to make better uh, informed decisions is uh, a foundational element.
1: Yeah. and It triggers another question that we we sort of alluded to or danced around earlier. I, I punted it to later in the conversation you think about BI, I mean, you could either look at, you could look at the BI capabilities of the core system that you're implementing, or you could be looking at standalone BI tools that Mm -hmm. would integrate with whatever tool or tools you have or plan on deploying. So that begs the question of just in general, not just for business intelligence, but just looking across our enterprise technologies, how do we know, or, you know, how do you navigate that decision of I want a single ERP system that can do everything, including business intelligence and warehouse management, financials, and CRM, HCM, all that stuff. Or do I go with more of a best to breed model, where I find multiple systems that can do, you know, more precisely what I want, and then I, you know, tie those together? How do you, how do we help clients make that decision? Because that seems to be one of those philosophical debates that I don't think will ever end. I don't think will any any side will ever win that argument, but you know, different answers for different clients. So how do they, how do we navigate that with our clients?
5: absolutely yeah that's been one of the um key pressing topics with a couple of my clients right now and um you could get you could get tied up around the axle in the infinite number of possibilities across those as well because even i mean we say acronyms like erp and crm and whatever but there are blurred boundaries between those and systems that would fit all kinds of uh, other ways around those that, that they have some capabilities we'll use salesforce as an example you know salesforce can easily be classified as a CRM system, but you can also extend Salesforce and do a lot of other things within that too. So it, it's not necessarily just to be looked at as a CRM, but um, you you have the key point is you have to start somewhere and think about what are, what is the focus area and what are both the things that are most important to you as an organization and the things where it's going to be most differentiating in terms of what system you choose to be able to start from. So um, really looking at that. Um, deciding on a foundation and saying this this is the kind of the stake we're going to put in about what the, what the system needs to do at its core. And then the other pieces can be uh, figured out around that. Because sometimes you may be able to find vendors who can do that stake and then they can also meet the other needs through some of the other products that they have or that integrate well with certain other systems. Um, so for example, working with another client of mine since late last year, we started with from the standpoint of we're going to do Uh, we want to look at one system crm erp and hcm and all those capabilities into one and we had some recommendations around that and uh before we even got into demos and and doing some of the analysis quickly decided that you know this wasn't going to this so wasn't going to work out with the vendors we were looking at. We weren't going to have any that were going to meet their needs across the board. So we said CRM is the most critical. Everyone in the organization is using CRM. They're uh, really focused on their um, the memberships they have in other organizations that they work with and being able to manage that from a CRM perspective. So we want to start from there, figure out what's most important from a CRM capability standpoint, and then look at how do we how do we layer in the other needs and how are they going to play with that uh, CRM choice for the ERP perspective so that's worked out well in this case we've chosen a CRM we've uh, we're getting close to choosing an ERP we're starting to do HCM demos and now we have some foundation on which to make those decisions and know that some of the other decisions have been made
1: yeah yeah it's a good way to good way to look at it and then you you, you know if you kind of lead with uh assuming you're looking for technology to replace you know most of your enterprise let's just say um, you know, there's certainly, there's always going to be cases where an organization, especially if you're a larger organization, you're just looking for a CRM system, or you're just mm-hmm. looking for, you know, a real specific need. But if you're, if you don't fall into that bucket, and you're looking for something more enterprise-wide, you know, that's a good rule of thumb, I think that you gave, which is to sort of start with that core, you a know, sort of ERP first mentality. Like if I can find an ERP system that can do everything that I want, great. Chances are you probably won't find something that can do everything you know, everything you want the way you want it to, but you could at least start there and then figure out where the gaps are. You, you have one preferred vendor at some point that does the core plus some, and then you figure out where those gaps are, and then you can figure out, okay, do I want to do some bolt-ons or some sort of best of breed model to make it a better fit for our organization. Yeah, so and,
5: it, and it's deciding if in a certain product category you need the best, or if you need something that's just good enough. You know, a good example of this is, uh, ERP systems, it's become pretty uh, expected now to have CRM capabilities associated with them, but most of the ERP providers, their CRMs are not going to necessarily compete with the best standalone CRMs from that capability. Um, so deciding though, if your CRM needs are not as extensive, that they, there may be more benefit from just getting the one that, that can be connected, even if it's not as fancy or as great as some of the standalone CRMs, that it, it's still going to do more for us by having it connected. But we're a manufacturer and we need to have that uh, manufacturing capability as just one example, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of different ways, but again, it's that, that foundation of what's most important to you and what's going to be most unique to you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I didn't tell you, I was going to ask, ask this question ahead of time. So I apologize in advance for asking. It might be a tough question. We'll see, but um, <laughs> just, uh, just more than anything, cause I'm, I'm interested maybe the audience might be interested too, but what, if you look at some of the, clients you've worked with over the last say six months or whatever it is you know or just working with now what are just some examples of some of the software vendors that are on the short lists or they're being carefully considered by you know the 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 grouping of clients you've worked with over the last amount of time not not exhaustive but just some examples
5: sure and you know it kind of we'll see some variation based on the type of clients i'm working with so for example i had um Two nonprofits with primarily financial needs. And they, in both cases, those were coming down to a competition of uh, Oracle NetSuite versus Agent Intact. And those are both uh, really good fit for uh, what we needed there. Um, in other cases, um, you know, going through some parallel ones now with some manufacturers as well as some other needs. So we've actually got, uh, had a lot of uh, discussion with uh, Infor and Epicor and Acumatica right now. Um, uh, have been in, in some of the discussions we have. Uh, it can vary too, as I said, in the public sector space. Um, you have some some products that are the same. So Oracle ERP Cloud was one of our our shortlist there, but um, in their public sector division. But um, Tyler Munis is a really strong player in the public sector space. So that was one that we saw. Um, I'm trying to remember. I don't want to give short shrift to any of the vendors that have been working with in some of these projects. Um, Microsoft Dynamics has come up. We've had um, Them come up on quite a few of our projects. I know we've got one of our uh, clients I worked with who's been working with them now. Um, IFS has been showing up uh, and and some lists. You know, know, it really, to to the point of uh, finding the system that's right for you, there's some other great systems that I haven't mentioned in that list. And it just comes down to the specific needs and fit of the organizations that I've been working with. And those have been some of the right ones. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's interesting. It's always interesting to hear, you know. Talk to different teams out from third stages, hearing, you know, what, what systems we're looking at and what ones clients are considering, which ones they're picking, which ones we're implementing. So it's, always, uh, it's, it's interesting to see how that evolves over time. Um, so I think a question that's probably on a lot of people's minds is, uh, what is the best uh, ERP or enterprise software out there? Do, do you have a favorite?
5: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't cause I,
5: I said I would, I really want to, um, the best one i mean it depends on who you are as an organization if you're a massive multinational corporation heavy manufacturing all kinds of i mean the answer might be just sap is the answer for us and that's the right software and it may be the most broad and extensive capabilities but there wouldn't even be under you know s4 hana wouldn't even be under consideration for a lot of our clients it would be too complex um, we've um, there there's systems that um, you said netsuite is one that's come up on a lot of ours and NetSuite can be a really good uh, fit for a lot of the ones, particularly those who are, like I said, it came with two of the nonprofits I was working with simultaneously where NetSuite, from a financials perspective, was uh, in the discussion around that. And, and we've gone to that a lot, but we've had other clients who NetSuite isn't uh, isn't really a right answer for them. Some of them that uh, maybe just the nature of the manufacturing, they're doing and the complexity of it, like NetSuite is not a good fit and doesn't, doesn't scale to as well as what they need to do. So um, it's, again, I can we uh, can weasel out of this and say it's the the best software is for each client the one that we end up picking you know? but yeah uh it, it's true there's just it, there's a lot of ones with a lot of good capabilities in different areas and uh you know we, we want to make sure we're looking at the right ones for you so uh,
1: yeah i you know, can bear quite a bit i think a lot of people w- want to believe that there is a best one out there we just aren't telling it there's got to be a <laughs> best one for everyone and you're just not telling us who it is but I think you're right it's You look at all of our evaluations. We've done this before in the past where because uh, potential clients sometimes will ask, okay, tell us what systems you've evaluated for different clients over the last amount of time and tell us which ones have been recommended. So we've had to go through that exercise in the past. And it's it's such a broad mix. I mean, you look at uh, Mm -hmm. even just the ones that end up getting recommended, you can't really find a pattern there. And that's actually what a lot of uh, potential clients wanted. Why they ask that question is they want to make sure that we actually are independent and agnostic and uh, Mm -hmm we are in fact agnostic. So we don't really, really care what system that a clients pick as long as it's the best fit for them. And on the flip yeah. side, I know, sorry, go ahead.
5: I, I was just going to add too. I mean, another example of this is, is Salesforce as well. I've worked a lot with Salesforce and been in an organization that was with Salesforce, got trained, uh, went through some Salesforce training as an admin, helped implement it at a nonprofit I've been volunteering for and um, had to come up with a lot of the clients that I'm working with, either they've been uh, using it or interested in using it, and you know, Salesforce and from a market share perspective is in a really strong space in the CRM, more so really than a ERP provider in terms of where they stand above anyone else. But you know, it's it's a great CRM tool, but it's also one that um, I've seen it very heavily misused as well, and I've seen organizations try to do everything out of it and treat it as their whole enterprise technology and build a lot of custom stuff on it or try to do things that Salesforce can do, but maybe not do so well, and it can be. Very problematic. So I mean that I may have worked with that more than more than others even, but um, and, and definitely, if someone's looking at a CRM, it's it's always in there, but it can be expensive. It can be a tough fit. Like um, so, I, I don't know any 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 recommendation of any software, even if it's a great fit for someone, there's always going to be some caveats and some some cautions for you and risks you have to watch out for.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I, I I like telling clients that, and I, th- I think it's important for us to always remember to tell clients that that. Even once you found the system that is the best fit for you, you still want to poke holes and find where those gaps are not because you want to create doubt or not because you want to freak out your internal stakeholders about you know problems, but because you need to know what they are because that's the stuff that drives the implementation Mm -hmm. duration and cost and risk, ultimately, so I think that's it's a really good point. Um, And I think there's probably a lot of vendors, I know a lot of vendors listen to this show software vendors and implementers, and I bet they're probably strongly disagree with yours and I's opinion that there is no best system out there. <laughs> they're all thinking, no, you were absolutely wrong. Our system is the best. You just don't.
5: <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. But, yeah.
1: So one last question for you uh, before we wrap up here. Um, how, how can organizations best get started on their ERP evaluation process? Say they, they recognize the need, they want to consider, or maybe they've already decided that they're going to replace whatever system or systems they have, how, do, how does a company get started?
5: Yeah, well, you know, uh, in the um, interest of you know how how we look at it from third stage and how I look at it and what we are able to do for our clients, you know, getting that independent advice is uh, always super valuable and that we're something we're able to offer organizations to be able to um, not just be able to give that independent advice on the um, the software categories and the types of selections, but also to be able to guide them through a structured process around how you need to capture the requirements and go to the rfp and choose your vendors and be able to do it in a way that we said you're, you're managing the pace and doing it in an efficient way and you may have uh you know large organizations may have some capabilities in some of these areas too to be able to do some of that so i don't want to say you necessarily need to you can't do this without third stage there certainly uh can be can be ways if it's for example the process uh, workshops that we run a lot of teams have a process specialists who can do that type of thing and uh it, we we often can guide you on and give some direction on how, how's the best way to do that in a way that's effective for what your project is. But, um, you know, we, it, it's really, um, and even if, uh, as you're starting to get the decision to choose whether it's us or another provider, it can give you an independent opinion of things to be able to start from the standpoint of talking about it with the right leadership people, design, defining the right folks who need to be engaged and uh, a part of the process and informed on the decision to be able to align on, you know, what you're trying to get out of it, where you hope to go, and uh, any of that will be useful. Like I said, we we have a workshop process in which we do this on a project, but. You should do it before you're you're talking to anyone, and have some uh, some people with some common expectations that you're uh, aligning around.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it, one thing I'd add to that is just make sure you're getting some level of agnostic filter in in your evaluation process, because you know inherently, you know, a lot of the stuff you just described, Brian, in, in your responses is is you're relying on the vendors to give you information in, in much of the evaluation, and even in cases where um, you know we're involved, you know, we're we're reaching out to vendors, we're capturing information from them. But we also bring tools to the table that are agnostic that, you know, again, to your point, even if you don't use third stage, you just want to make sure that you have these tools like this or a way to bring agnostic tools at to the table. Like in our case, it's our database that we use to um, map out requirements to different systems to quantitatively look at how well do the systems do these things, not just do they do it or no, it's more how well do they do it. So that's just one example. And then certainly our experience implementing different systems just gives us a you know, agnostic view of the world and the fact that we're not getting compensated by vendors makes us agnostic. So reason I bring all this up, not necessarily to say you should hire third stage, although I, to be candid, I do think organizations should hire us. But even if you don't, you want to make sure that you have that sort of someone on the team that's agnostic, that has a broad view that can bring that unbiased perspective to the evaluation, because so much of the evaluation is already going to be biased as it is because you're, you know, getting RFP responses and demos and things from sales reps that are trying to close you on a, on a deal. So uh, that's, that sound advice, I appreciate you sharing that. And uh, also appreciate you being here today. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking time out of your Friday and thank you to the audience that participated and asked the great questions, appreciate that. And uh, yeah, thanks for being here, Brian.
5: Yeah, thanks Eric, I enjoyed the discussion and thank you to everyone for the questions that you submitted.
1: All right, thanks for being here, Brian. That was a great discussion, very interesting. I always learn something new when I when I have Brian on the show and learn something new about some of the different technologies we're, we're considering for our clients. And we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, pre Kyler, and I are going to talk a bit more about this topic of software evaluation and selection and build on some of the points that Brian brought up. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control.
4: if If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success, learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com.
1: Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling, here with Prisa Noble and Kyler Cheatham. We just had Brian on the show. We talked about software evaluation and selection. And Parisa, what were some of your findings or what were what some of the things that jumped out at you during that discussion?
2: Yeah, well, he talked a lot about business processes and how it really starts there. It's not about the technology. Honestly, you should probably decide that at the end after you figure out what your business processes are and what your future state is going to look like and let those things drive your decision on software selection. So I guess... My question for you is what are some of the best practices around identifying and optimizing your business processes before you get into the software selection process?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a common thing that clients often struggle with and a question we commonly get. And, and what I always tell clients is, first of all, you don't want to treat all your processes equally. So there might be some business processes that are more commodity-based, that are maybe less important to your business. And, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Uh, those people doing those processes probably would disagree that they're not important, but there's certain types of processes that are more common and more consistent across different organizations. So things like um, GL and accounting-based processes oftentimes are very similar or um, human capital or recruiting processes, procurement processes. Um, Not to say that's true for all organizations, but within your organization, there's probably two buckets of processes. There's those that are very unique to you because they're competitive at competitive differentiators or things that you want to retain a difference or an advantage on and then there's other other processes where you could live with whatever the software does or doesn't do and so I think in the case of the first bucket where it's the things that are competitive differentiators and things that are unique to you that's where you typically would focus more of your time identifying where you might improve some processes and how you want those processes to look in the future and that'll help you pick a better software but it'll also help ensure that you don't just pick a software that's just going to automate the way you do things today. It's going to help you automate the way you want to do things in the future. So I think that's where you focus your time. You still want to define your processes at a high level, along with your requirements for those other areas, but generally you're not going to go as deep or spend as much time on that as you might in some of the other areas.
2: Interesting. And I know we also talk a lot about future states. So, and and really just the, the concept of doing a gap analysis. So how does that play into defining your processes today and then formulating what your future state would look like? Would you recommend doing a gap analysis or are there other approaches you could take? What do you think?
1: Well, first of all, I mean, I think it's important to start with where you are today, because even though a lot of organizations instincts are to ignore the current state because it's broken or it's imperfect and you want to focus on the future state the people within your organization don't, they don't understand the future state yet. They don't know what that is yet, but they do understand how things work today. And a lot of times they, they can just use that as a foundation to get to the future state. So generally starting with the, the current state first is, is helpful. And then as far as the gap analysis piece of it, uh, that part's I'd say more important from a change management perspective in, in helping people understand how they're gonna move from A to B or point A to point B in, in the journey or in the, the process improvements. So it may not be important so much from a pure software design and testing perspective. You know, you can build the software without knowing what those gaps are. You could just build it based on the future state without thinking too much about the current state. So from a technology perspective, it's not that important. But from a process improvement and definitely from a even more so from an organizational change perspective, it's, it's absolutely critical to understand, you know, where people's jobs are today and how they're going to look in the future and what those processes and roles are going to look like in the future.
2: That makes sense. That kind of ties in with the conversation about keeping that transparency to help your OCM strategies kind of move forward and help your employees get acclimated a little bit better because they have more insight on where you are, where you're going and why everything is changing. Yeah. (laughs) So that makes total sense. So, and then as far as time, timing on business processes, so some companies may have a drawn out process map and be really crystal clear on what they do, how they do it. Um, for those who maybe it might be a little bit more muddy, if you will, would you suggest having them figure out their processes first and have that crystal clear map before they dive into the software selection process? Does it make that big of a difference?
1: I think it does. And in an ideal situation, you would define your processes in, As much detail as makes sense, I mean, you definitely don't need to go down to the detail of what I want the screens to look like and what buttons I would push and how the technology itself is going to work, not down at that transactional workflow level, but you sort of view it as a, from the perspective of regardless of what technology I use or whether I'm not even using technology, if I'm just using pen and paper, what would the process look like? I mean, what should it look like? How would that customer interaction look? Now, obviously you want to be thinking about how technology might help make your process more efficient and more effective. So you do it more from a technology agnostic perspective of, in a perfect world, this is how my processes would look, and this is how I'd like them to look. Then you use that to translate into requirements, then help you evaluate potential options. And you're never going to find everything you want, but at least it gives you a, a benchmark to, to gauge against to see how good of a fit the technology is. Uh, the reason I say that's ideal but doesn't always happen is because a lot of times organizations don't have the, the budget or the resources to do that prior to starting a full transformation in earnest. So in other words, they might have approval to go explore potential options and to go pick a software, but they don't necessarily have the approval to move forward with a full-blown implementation. And the reason that's important is because that that puts pressure on organizations sometimes to say, well, I don't have time to really, I don't have the time or the budget or the resources to define my processes in any great amount of detail. So I'm going to have to do a higher level flyover view of sort of what my requirements are and then figure out what the technology fit is, then figure out what the potential cost is. Then I figure out if I get the budget. And if I do, then I can go into more detail defining the processes and that sort of thing. So you sort of have to base it on where you are and how your organization works politically and budgetary wise and all that good stuff. But in a perfect world, I would say the more process work you can do up front, the better off you're going to be because you'll have a clear vision of what it is you want to get out of the technology. And you'll be able to use that as sort of a guiding blueprint to help you not only pick the technology, but then you can use those same processes to help you design and build the software later on once you've, once you've selected it.
3: And it sounds like based off of what Brian kind of walked us through is the first session for clients that come to third stage is just business strategy and really kind of helping them. Um, because I know if I were a business owner, I would be like, Oh my goodness, you know, I don't know what all of these processes are. I don't even know like where to start. And it sounds like, you know, Brian and team kind of come in and guide, clients through that process, um, which I can just imagine is an, an unbelievable asset because then you have your needs and you're ready to graduate to actually having that conversation about which software fits your needs, right? So that really kind of comes back to that core alignment that we talk so much about on this show.
1: I was just going to say that strategic alignment is super important and that should come before you know before the process work and, and the process work becomes more clear and more deliberate when you've done that after you've defined what your strategy is, what is you're trying to be when you grew up at a high level, then the processes sort of fall into place from that.
2: Right. And I mean, it's interesting because we always talk about how every single company is unique. Everybody's in a different position. Everybody has different, you know, the way that they have mapped out their processes is different than another company. So it kind of changes your starting point. And then it goes into that takes me to the best of breed versus ERP conversation. And it sounds like based off of your conversation with Brian, this is an ongoing debate that will likely never end (laughs) is do you go with a, a best of breed that is specific to helping your sales and marketing team? Or is it, you know, would you be more willing to bring on an ERP system that can help multiple facets of your business, but maybe it's not as, you know, fancy as a best of breed would be that's specifically focused on that department. So it took me to the conversation of competitive advantage or the subject of competitive advantage, because if you have companies that bring on really good best of breed software uh, that speak to each independent department within the company, wouldn't that ultimately lead to better efficiencies, better, you know customer experience, etc., because their systems are speaking directly to and filling that need rather than kind of like the one size fits all ERP.
1: Yeah, that's a intuitive point and, and a point I agree with. It's, uh, it, it that is the, the ultimate trade off is what you said is absolutely true, but then. If I do what you said, which is gonna solve one problem, which is now I, I have a better fit for one specific part of my business. I can provide better customer experience because of it, better employee experience, all that good stuff. Now now what I've done is I've solved one problem, but now I've created another problem, which is now I have to figure out how to integrate all these systems. How does the data work? Um, is my IT team capable of supporting all these different systems? Is it gonna create confusion and disparate processes because now we're on different systems? So. It does solve a problem, but it creates other problems. And and th- that's why I don't think this debate will ever get resolved. A lot like, you know, which political party is the best or which sports team or sports franchise is the best. There, I don't think anyone will ever agree on those answers either, uh, or at least a majority of people aren't going to unanimously agree on that. So it's going to be a constant, ongoing debate, I, I suspect, because of that, because I think everyone's looking for that silver bullet, but there isn't one. You you know, you're just replacing one risk with another when you when you solve one problem. And that's the beauty and the the curse, the blessing, the curse, I guess you'd call it, of of the double-edged sword of digital transformation. And that's why it's so difficult.
3: Yeah. And understanding what you're going to do in the future, right? I know we just put out um, a really interesting blog on um, the top CRM systems and just talking about, okay, we need a CRM system. And I think Brian referenced that as one of his clients, um, you know, kind of went through this process and they're like, okay, really, that's the direction we're wanting to go. But what's going to happen in five years, ten years when you need to integrate or grow and scale to other systems? And that that should influence the decision, right, of what what um, what software system has the capabilities to build out that ERP suite um, along with these best of breed systems. Um, So I know a lot can do that and other ones, you know, can do it differently for um, unique companies. But understanding, you know, what will you be in 10, 20 years when you want to utilize different systems as well. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. You don't, you don't want to just automate what you're doing today. You want to, you want to be able to automate what you, you want to be when you grow up.
2: Yeah. Like buying a shoe. That's maybe one size too big when you're a teenager, so you can go into <laughs> it. <laughs> All right. Yep. It makes sense. That's a good point. And another thing too, I I am curious on your perspective. Again, I know I always bring up the system integrator perspective, but it just is so interesting to me to see all the different biases that could influence a company's decision when it comes to selecting their software. So maybe we could talk a little bit about, you know, whether it's a system integrator or alike, what is the bias behind their recommendation if they're giving a recommendation behind, you know, you should buy this software because I'm selling it and, you know, et cetera. Um, versus bringing in an independent third-party consultant?
1: Well, I think the biggest thing, you know, obviously the, the on the surface, the the benefit of having that lack of bias is the fact that you, you, you make the right decision. You make the decision that's best for you. But even beyond the decision itself of what technology really is the best fit for me, it's also just as important, I would argue, just as important as picking the right technology is also just making sure you understand the realistic um, – the realistic the reality of that technology and so whenever we have clients who we have a lot of clients right now we're talking to about potentially becoming clients so they're, they're prospective clients but there's several of them that, that i'm involved with speaking with right now who've already picked sap or they've already picked oracle or microsoft or whatever technology they're going to use and that's not really a question uh they're, they're already sort of heading that direction but the reason they're hiring us is to help them figure out what they don't know you know what are we missing here not not that we not that they want us to help them change their their minds about the technology, but because they want to know where the blind spots are. What are the risks? What is the, what's the implementation really going to look like? What's, what's going to be required of them during the implementation. And I think that's a root cause of why so many of these projects fail is because people in organizations and teams don't have a realistic view of how much it's going to cost. How much time is it going to take? How difficult is it really going to be? Um, You know, what all goes into a transformation beyond just the technology? You know, how is it going to affect people and the processes and all that stuff? So, you know, the bias of, System integrators and vendors is that they don't either they don't know or they don't necessarily need or want to tell you what the downside risk of their product is, but inherently by putting in new technology, there's a ton of risk, and so you need to expose that and understand that or else you're going to lead yourselves into into trouble. so I think that that's where the lack of bias and the independence that we bring to our to our clients is, is so important,
2: right. And you mentioned ERP failures. I'm curious, you know, we always talk about the different attributes that lead to ERP failure. And it doesn't sound like necessarily not picking the, the best fit software is what would necessarily lead you to ERP failure, is it? I mean, how often is it that a failure would be due to not picking the ideal software for your company, um, but rather it's an OCM issue, it's, it's, you know, how long it takes, et cetera. Does that make sense? Like, how, how often does that even happen that if you pick Microsoft 365 versus SAP, let's say, that can you make it work or is it because you picked Microsoft D365 that you failed?
1: Yeah, I'd say it's it happens occasionally, but it's not as common that the technology or, or choosing the wrong technology is a root cause of failure. I mean, it, it can happen for sure, but for that to be the root cause of failure, you have to have a complete mismatch. I mean, you have to be either because you're an organization that is so different that there's no system out there. or There's just very few systems out there that can do what you, you need to do. Uh, or there's, uh, you know, something core to your business that it, it just isn't a fit with the technology. So just to give a couple examples, I mean, if you look at organizations that have unique complexities that not every system is going to be able to address in, in any sort of way. An example would be like beverage manufacturers or any sort of uh, manufacturer that, that produces chemicals or food, things that are require a recipe. So process manufacturing where you're going to take not just units of one you know one widget and you're putting one, two and three widgets together to create one finished product it's more i need ounces of one product I need gallons of another and then i need and i need pounds of another in terms of unit of measure i'm going to put that all together to create some sort of finished product that process manufacturing that's based on something other than a normal unit of measure that's that's a, an example of something that's different for food and beverage manufacturers and chemical manufacturers for example that a lot of systems out there can't handle so if you pick the wrong system in that case then yes you might fail but if you get close and you've got five systems that can all do that core part of your business, and they do all the all the big stuff right, chances are that yeah, maybe there's maybe you didn't pick the one that was best for you, but it can handle you know seventy percent of what you need versus you know one. There might be one out there that could do ninety percent of what you need. Is that alone gonna cause you to fail? Probably not. It it's certainly not gonna help. I mean, it's not gonna make things easier by any means, but it's probably not gonna cause you to go into a complete failure. The more likely scenario, though, the more common reasons for failure are the things you mentioned, the the change management, the lack of change management, I should say, the uh, lack of focus on business processes or the lack of clarity, the business processes, the internal misalignment. Those are the things that are more likely to create failure.
2: That makes sense. I mean, if you can hit 70% of what you need, that's still pretty good, but I guess it's more so a conversation of inhibiting your benefits realization, right? If you pick the other one uh, that could hit 90%, you probably would have been better off. But is it a complete failure? Probably not. So that makes complete sense. Now, I know Brian was talking a little bit about SAP S4 HANA, um, and it sounded like that was one of the more customizable, flexible options for companies. Did I hear that right?
1: it's becoming a bit more flexible yes than especially compared to some of the legacy SAP products the older SAP products um systems that were not flexible but that it is a bit more flexible than some of the older SAP systems it's not the oh most flexible system out there there's ones that are more flexible for sure but they're getting there on the flexibility side
2: okay got it now that it made me think about you know depending on a company's status and where they are, you know, as far as what's their growth trajectory, are they small, medium, large uh, you know, they probably have different needs in the level of flexibility that they would need versus if they need more of a standard software that would help them kind of bring everything together rather than kind of let it branch off. So I'm curious on your thoughts on what types of companies would benefit most from a flexible, more customizable software versus, you know, the standard softwares out there?
1: Well, in general, the ones that are going to benefit from the more flexible software are going to be the ones that are either organizations that are changing very quickly. So they're entering new markets, they're acquiring companies, they're um, taking on new customers at a rapid pace and and the needs and the demands on the organization are changing constantly. That type of organization is an example of one that's probably going to value flexibility over standardization. Um, Also, entrepreneurial smaller high growth companies those are ones that they generally aren't going to do well if they try to lock themselves into a standard process or an overly rigid system Um, on the flip side you know global organizations that are mature and pretty well established pretty stable they're not growing super fast um, and they're just trying to drive economies of scale and trying to wring cost out of their operations that might be a situation where less flexibility is important and more standardization is important so You just sort of have to look at where you want to shift the needle and where where you want the pendulum to land on that whole spectrum of flexibility versus common standard uh, processes. But those are a couple of examples of where the flexibility can be of more value.
3: Yeah. And that that also, Eric, really depends on internal resources, right? Um, You know, do you have the IT support to um, be able to support those more flexible options and really dig into what that means. You know, we talk a lot about open source and and counsel our clients that that sounds really cool and sexy, but do you have the the IT team needed to support something um, that is so flexible? So I think, again, we kind of go into what is the roles of everyone in this conversation, right? And then you always have the Brian Lockaruba and his very calming, relaxed, voice and just overall energy to say, you know, just remember when you are, when you are selecting these softwares, when it comes to whatever size you are, what is, what do we need to think of full picture, you know? And I think that's really what he hit on here is that's where he is the resource, whether it's the SI, whether it's the vendor, whether it's, you know, going into what the processes are, you really do need someone that kind of sees that bird's eye view of the overall business and the situation.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I mean, you look at Odoo being an open source system and Microsoft Dynamics 365 is, is a more flexible system. Those are two examples of more flexible systems in the market. And to some people, you think that's awesome. I can be more flexible. I've got all this leeway and how I want my processes to look. But the bad news is, first of all, just because you can change the software doesn't mean you should. Um, second of all, because that could just be hiding or masking a resistance to change or organizational change issues. But secondly, to your point, Kyler, if you change the software, if you want to change the software, that requires a certain amount of IT support um, that, you know, the average end user isn't going to be able to just go into most systems and just change it. You're going to need the IT support. So, uh, again, it's that double-edged sword that we talk about with any any given trade-off you have to make.
2: It's always a double-edged sword.
1: <laughs> I know. That, it's
2: always trade-offs.
1: Yeah, we're all, we're all searching for that. 100% perfect answer that solves all of our problems without any risk, but we have yet to find it. That's our That should be our quest on the show, as we will keep searching for the answer that will be the perfect answer for <laughs> everyone. We will never everyone. stop. <laughs> our quest <laughs> will Even be ongoing. Even if you want us to. <laughs> <laughs> the audience will say, please just, yeah, just stop. stop <laughs> You're never going to find it. <laughs> well,
3: that's
2: uh, funny. Well, I'm, I'm interested in kind of diving into on software specifics. So, you know, I'm, what are your thoughts on which softwares are the more flexible ones? Maybe you could give me two of them that come to mind, um, that would allow for that flexibility. And then maybe give me two of them that are a, a better fit for the companies that really want to standardize their process.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the two examples I gave before flexible ones, Odoo and Microsoft D365, those are two common or, you know, popular systems in the market that are more flexible I'd say the less flexible ones are going to be like NetSuite or Oracle NetSuite is a um, very popular system used by a lot of companies, but it's relatively um, inflexible in terms of uh, when you compare it to other systems. Now, whenever I say that, I I get a lot of pushback from the the NetSuite community, the consultants and VARs and vendors in the community that say that is absolutely not true. NetSuite is totally flexible. But I'm comparing it to other systems. It's not as flexible as other systems in the market, and we, we see all of them. We help clients implement all of them. Um, so NetSuite's one, and then I'd say SAP S four Hana. Even though it's becoming more flexible than some of the older SAP systems, it's still it's still better and works better when you when you work sort of a, a standard way, you know, using it off the shelf and the, the way it was built. And and it's built really for big companies that are trying to transact huge amounts of volume and efficiency and that sort of thing. So that's what it's built for. It's not built to be super flexible in the way that like an Odoo might be your D365.
2: Okay. Got it. And then I'm, I'm also curious based on company size too. So maybe we could turn this into one of our famous games.
1: The speed round.
2: <laughs> yep Speed round where, where I give you, you know, the different sizes of the companies and you name, You know, the top three most commonly used, this wouldn't be like your favorites, but just what you see people or companies integrating based on their size. Okay. Deal? You ready for it? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Let's start with a small business. What are three commonly used ERP solutions or really just any software solutions that you see small businesses adopting?
1: Well, a small one, uh, QuickBooks, whether you, you love it or hate it, QuickBooks is just the reality is a lot of small companies use QuickBooks, for at least from a finance and accounting perspective. As far as ERP systems, though, like broader ERP that can do more than just finance and accounting, uh, NetSuite is very uh, popular uh, in that segment. Um, and I'll throw in a wild card here. Um, well, I'll say, are you going to ask me about mid sized companies too? Maybe I'll say I'll save it for the mid size companies, but, uh, so I'll say, so I'll say, uh, NetSuite, uh, QuickBooks and, um, Odoo, I almost want to say Odoo, but I think, uh, most small companies don't have the IT staff and the IT competency to support that. That's more of a, I'd say a mid-size mid-market type of thing. Although the price tag of Odoo is more suitable for small. So I'll, let's go ahead and throw Odoo in there. I'll, I'll, I'll okay. go with Odoo on that.
3: What about like Acumatica?
1: That that was one of the ones I was thinking maybe, but I was going to save it for the mid-market.
3: Okay, I don't want to ruin it. Yeah,
1: that's okay. You already, you already did. I already did. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. I'll have to change my answer now just so I don't copy you. <laughs>
3: just kidding.
2: Well, in the sake of keeping it interesting, let's go to large companies since we already got a little snippet of mid. So tell me about large companies, like Fortune 500 size.
1: Uh, yeah, SAP, S4 HANA for sure, Oracle Cloud for sure. Microsoft D365 is another one for uh, for big companies. So I I'd, I'd say those are the big 3 in the in terms of market share and in terms of uh, you know, it just so happens those are the biggest 3 ERP vendors market share wise. And the reason for that is cuz they deal so much with the big Fortune 500. So,
2: yeah, that makes
1: That sense. one's a little bit more straightforward.
2: Right. And then mid-size.
1: Mid-size. So, yeah, I would say Acumatica what 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 led you to that? Same conclusion, Kyler. Um,
3: Well, I was trying to play the game too and think about like which ones I would do just from all the content we consume. So I was wondering if Acumatica and mostly because Brian had referenced it too, right when he was talking about that. That's one of those that it seems like Acumatica and NetSuite, you know, they can kind of trickle down into the smaller businesses, but it really just depends on the overall um, kind of proficiency of the actual business and if they actually need an ERP. It sounds like a lot of times, and I know Christy um, Barber, our small business specialist, discussed that a lot with her clients. To so do you need an ERP system, or do you need, um, you know, just to to look at a finance or accounting, or even an IS, IFS that's more industry specific, right? Um, when it comes to something like manufacturing. So I was just trying to hijack the game over here. So sorry. About
2: that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good job. You nailed it. No,
1: that, that is a good one, though. I mean, out I is a great one. DCOM is another one, especially if you're a manufacturing distribution company. Uh, DCOM can be a good one for the mid-market. Um, actually, D365, even though I mentioned that for larger organizations, I'd say it's an ev- uh, even better fit for mid-size. So mid-market, especially upper mid-market companies that are not quite Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 global companies, but they're decent size. Uh, D365 can be a really good one, partly because it it's a good balance of scale versus flexibility that a lot of those sized companies are trying to get at. Um, so those are a few that come to mind. There's We well, do all these top 10 rankings. There's hundreds of systems out there. So you can almost, you know, it's so unique to each different client situation. It's hard to come up with a general, you know, here are the three best ones, but those are the ones that come to mind for me at least. And I don't know. Did you add anything else to that, Kyler, to the mid market?
3: Um, no, I mean I think that that's a great list. Like you said, we have tons of of lists on um, our uh, our YouTube channel and our blogs. I think the one thing I I will just add, you know, my expertise is the the D three sixty five. I always think the the conversation of of user user integration and just a lot of people run Microsoft types of user interactions when it comes to email. So I always find that one. Really interesting for our more mid-sized businesses that are working through like this is a huge change. Just having that ease of use to be able to add to that portfolio is probably something that I would assume would be easier.
2: Right. I imagine it would help with the change management side of things. If people are a little bit more familiar with the UI, they are likely to adopt it more easily, I would imagine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, and too, with D365, isn't it modules? So if you just need, you know, the finance and accounting piece, you can add that. And then as you scale and grow, you can tack on the different elements of it as well.
1: Yep. So. Yeah, that's true for a lot of them. You know, a lot of the systems. You, now it, it is easier in many ways if you keep it all, you know, use, use all the modules you're going to need all at once. It, it does create more of an integrated feel. But uh, you can certainly implement or deploy just certain modules. Like with Microsoft, a lot of companies will start with like CRM. You know, they'll start with the CRM side of it, partly because Microsoft is so strong in CRM. Um, Others will start with accounting and finance first, and then they might add modules after that. So there's a lot of different directions you can go with that.
2: Right. Makes sense. I mean, the whole conversation around picking the software and dialing in on on which one is right for you is – is an ongoing one that we always talk about and it always comes back to building out your digital strategy and finding the software that would complement it. So I'm excited to get into Stuart's section uh, on all things digital strategy related.
1: Yeah. It's it's a, it's a good segue or kind of working our way up the strategic food chain here. You know, start off with the, the software evaluation side of it with Brian and obviously this conversation here with the three of us. But if we back up even more and talk about, well, let's just talk about digital strategy in general. You know, we're not quite, maybe we're not quite ready to start selecting software yet. Or maybe we've already selected the software and we're just trying to figure out what our general digital strategy is going to be to roll it out and to integrate it within our organization. And that's really the intent of having Stu on the show. And the reason I wanted to play this clip that um, you guys are, or Parisa, you're in it as well because you moderated the session or the, the workshop we had a few days ago. Uh, but this was a uh, part of our f- full throttle session, a, d- a digital strategy workshop that uh, he hosted here a couple of days ago. So I'm going to we're going to play that clip when we come back from a quick break and then uh, we'll we'll dive into it from there. So we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control.
6: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn a third stage consulting group. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com.
0: We're talking about um, technology um, and uh, technology strategies really, uh, where I want to try and start actually was not where technology starts, also uh, where technology ought to start, but frequently doesn't. And that is in, uh, actually alignment with the business strategy. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, uh, many of you will be aware that, um, uh, some CIOs particularly get very excited about the actual pl- platform footprints. Um, and they lose sight of what the business strategy is. I uh, was uh, with a, uh, working for an organization a few years ago, actually, that had become obsessed uh, with their, um, their desktop footprint. And the new CIA was obviously very keen to make an impression. Um, and they bought in um, uh, consultants to completely transform the company from microsoft to google docs um now i have to preface preface this by saying i'm not a huge fan of google docs because every document you have to end up reformatting um which if you've got the number of documents that i have is a major problem but nonetheless um he transitioned the whole company from uh, microsoft to google docs and it took him about two years uh to, to do it fully and um for the best Uh, part of two years um there were constant questions over exactly what the business benefit of this whole transition was um and the answer was always the same because google docs is a lot cheaper and anyway he as with many cios lasted about uh, two and a half years and then he was replaced by somebody else who Predictably enough, what the hell are we using Google Docs for? And they then spent another two years transitioning back to Microsoft. So um, that's my personal technology story, um, uh, which one that sits at the forefront of my mind. Um, But that is clearly something that really wasn't business strategy driven. It was driven by an emotional, passionate hatred of Microsoft um, and uh, led to millions of pounds being invested in something that. Uh, when he was uh, when he was no longer with the organisation, um, they they went back to they went back to the traditional way of doing things. So I think there is a lesson to be learned in there, and I think there's a question that you've always got to ask yourself is you know what is that there is a there's a there's a certain amount of herd instinct in in um, it, um, and generally um, being in the herd is a good thing uh, because you get the 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 herd is provide you with the protection and the insulation so unless there's a really 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 good reason not to go with the herd uh, you know the, there's a general sense that that it is better um, to 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 lag rather than lead in in IT now it's certainly true that in startups uh, you know they have the opportunity to lead because um, you know they're building a business model on transforming things um, But if my business is insurance, then, you know, unless I have a really good insurance proposition, really, I'm not going to make any substantial amount of difference to my business, whether I'm on Google or Microsoft. And so, um, you know, if there's some new whizzy insurance tech out there that's going to transform my offer to clients, then I'm all for it. If it's going to change the look and feel of my desktop, then I am absolutely not. Anyway, so that's my that's my how many minutes was that It was about a 10 minute rant. So that's good. We've got that out of the way. I've got it off my chest now. So let's talk about um, where what I think you should do. So I'm just going to share my screen like this. I'm just going to talk a little bit about digital strategy um, because, um, you know, technologies and technology leading practice um, <clears throat> has to start from the digital strategy. Um, And it's surprising, again, a lot of organisations actually don't have a well-formulated digital strategy. Um, And so there's no real target, uh, there's no real improvement targets or measures to go for, and there's no process or mechanism to achieve them. Um, Now, we do a lot of ERP replacements, as as I'm sure um, many of you will know. And actually, um, even in the ERP space, it's a very bad place to to start to say we need to replace our ERP. And in fact, one of our very first questions, whenever a customer says those, well, why? Um, And so really what you need to be thinking is where does the business want to be in two, five, 10 years time? And where does our technology strategy, what does our technology strategy need to be in order to support that? Now it's very difficult, obviously, to predict what technology is going to look like in 10 years time. But given that the average life of an ERP is 10 years, in fact, it's about 11 now, I think, um, then 10 years is a good goal, a good vision reach uh, in order to develop your strategy and in order to develop a, an effective one. The first um, thing you find about digital strategies, and many of those that do exist, um, are not very cohesively thought through um and the first point uh, obviously here it says misalignment well that's misalignment across a number of dimensions it's misalignment with the business goals um and whilst uh, it might appear on the face of it that the strategies are aligned usually a little bit of scratching away at the strategy will reveal some glaring gaps or holes and I, and you know i'm going to use my google Uh, Microsoft example, uh, a couple of times in this presentation. Um, But that's a that would be an example of what I would describe as a misalignment. And the reason I say that is quite simple. The business didn't want the platform changed. Um, The CIO was persuaded uh, uh, coming into the organisation that it was a good thing to do. And the board went along with it. But it wasn't something that was supporting any business strategy. So therefore, um you started with a misalignment because the business really didn't want the faff of transitioning from one desktop platform to another and they, despite the claim it's not as actually quite as simple as everybody makes out there's not a 100 percent compatibility and therefore it's effort and if that effort is not bringing a really 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 good return on investment then the investment's not worth making we do uh, lots of strategies um but the first thing we do in a strategy is actually we don't talk about the technology at all um and um we try and look at uh where we believe the business is going to be in the uh, strategic horizon that we're looking at and we'll do, again do that over uh, several windows so typically where do we want to be in two years where do we want to be in five and where do we want to be in uh, either seven or ten um and all of that will be a bit about what your business growth is, uh, any increases in business complexity, uh, whether you're on an acquisition strategy, whether you're on an investment strategy, whether you want better cost optimization in the business. um, And all of those goals, which are business goals, can then be distilled into um, a a set of uh, uh, technology actions uh, in order to realize uh, the business strategy. Now, they won't only be technology actions. And in fact, one of the things that we'll talk about in a couple of minutes is the importance of developing a, a target operating model before you get into talking about the strategy. So another of, uh, another client that we're currently involved in um, has uh, end-of-life ERP uh, financials and HCM system. Um, and they're costly to run, and they uh, don't do exactly what the business wants, and there's no common data, and 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 and, and so um, the obvious thing they go is right. Well, we're going to go for a replacement. Which one should it be? Should it be Workday? Should it be Oracle? Should it be SAP? And they've gone straight into the weeds of defining the detailed requirements for what I need out of this ERP or that ERP. Now, is that the place that most businesses start? Yes, it absolutely is. And it's almost always a mistake to start there, because unless you know what you want the business to become, what your organizational goals are, then all you're going to do is replace one piece of obsolete technology with a piece of shiny technology that's going to do the same job. So your opportunities for automation, cost optimization, uh process re-engineering uh you know restructuring whatever it is is lost because you're not doing a transformation you're not using the technology refresh as an opportunity to improve the business you're using the transformation as an opportunity to replace obsolescent technology which is still going to cost you 100 million dollars but your benefit out of that is going to be very very small compared to what you could do if you've thought holistically about what you want to change so, how do we um how do we start this process off? Well, as I mentioned before, we um, will ordinarily uh, you define a target operating model. And so the first thing you need um, in a target operating model is you need to know what you do today. So typically a starting point would be um, we would do a process analysis, which is fairly high level. Uh, uh so sorry after we had done the business goals which we talked about uh, a little bit earlier we'd, we'd identify uh, we'd typically do a process analysis so we would just find out what all of your level one and your level two processes are and then we would use a taxonomy um for, for a whole variety of tasks it's such a useful tool but the t- the the taxonomy is um basically there is the anchor of the scope of what you're trying to transform um, and as it says there, um, you can use the taxonomy to identify pain points. Um, you can use the taxonomy to identify areas of a high cost. You can use it to look at um, identify processes that high, have high customer or high colleague value. Um, so it's got a variety of, of uses. And what we do is we rag the um, taxonomy red, amber, green. So that gives us um, areas to focus. So having um, gone through that process of defining the goals of the business, defining the process taxonomy, we then look at um, uh, the, the alignment with the business goals by, by process. And we say, does it align or not? Yes, no. And then we do a technology assessment, to say, well, what technology is supporting those processes? And then. Uh, we will iterate around that until we start to coalesce on a course of action and the course of action can be different for every client so for example um one of our clients has a very old erp but it works perfectly well and it's old and it's technologically obsolescent and the support is getting a bit worse for it but they bought us in to do an ERP replacement. Now, three years on, we still haven't done the ERP replacement, but we have done a uh, significant business transformation. Mm. And that's because, in a lot of cases, um, nearly all of the pain in the business was all about how the business worked, not about the technology underpinning it. So it's around um, what we call dead fish. So Uh, someone upstream is polluting the data in a process and as that process moves downstream we are standing on the bank fishing and we're finding that we're not getting many catches because most of the fish that are coming past us are dead. So you know there's a clear call to action there to go and look at the upstream processes and the departments that are using those processes and find out why they are killing fish and why they are producing duff data and that's not a problem that any new erp solution is likely to resolve if they were producing rubbish data before in the old erp it's there's an equal chance that they might continue to produce data in the new erp it'll just have prettier screens so um you can do an awful lot and actually in a lot of cases you can do an awful lot more by changing uh, the operations of a business, changing the processes, improving the process metrics, uh, I- increasing the learning, um, reducing the cost by moving offshore some functions. there are a hundred ways that you can improve a particular function in a business without touching the technology. So we oddly enough, for an ERP consulting firm, actually one of our we advocate, thinking about the technology almost last that is the least important thing that you will worry about and then when you do come to think about the technology again you're going to have a myriad of options and in this particular client we looked at each major capability um, that the business uh, did um, and uh, we looked at that capability through the lens of What is the minimum footprint of change that we can do to that particular part of the business that will improve that business without creating a lot of disruption for the rest of the business? And so I can give you a couple of illustrative examples of that. The first is that we looked at um, accounts payable, and the accounts payable function in the ERP that was supporting the business is basically completely broken. And so what we did there was um, set up uh, a, a, a new AP capability using Proactis, and Proactis has vendor portal capabilities, it has invoice automation capabilities, and um, it has much easier um, user interface um, to, to support business colleagues uh, in procuring stuff and that was implemented but and that was implemented almost as a standalone project um and then that was integrated back into the erp and the erp's ap functionality was retired and that was relatively painless uh non relatively non-disruptive um there were some change impacts to the way that ap was handled some of the ap was moved out to uh, india um and um uh, uh, and, uh, and some, there was some headcount shuffling about, um, in the U S and Europe, but that is a great example of how we have increased, uh, up, increased the capability of the business in a particular capability area, but without having to go through the huge cost expense and nightmare of changing the whole ERP for the whole business. And then we're currently doing the same um uh in uh accounts receivable as well um so we've got a uh this uh th- the same organization we're just finishing up a project to put in high radius to improve the day sales outstanding and pr- improve the de- aging and um uh again some of the functions that currently being supported in the us and the uk are going to be shifted to india um and actually um, the cost of the software in that particular project is not the significant factor. In fact, we replace just our two heads or sorry, replace if we um, uh, reduce our head count by just two heads. Um, the whole project is paid for um, uh, over five years. Um, but it's the improvement that we can get to the DSO that is really important because that's millions of dollars sitting in the customer's bank account that should be sitting in ours and that has an awful lot of impacts like to your uh, liquidity um, your debt covenants and all sorts of other things so th- that t- that tight coupling excuse me that tight coupling between the business goal which is let's improve our dso let's uh, uh, manage our debt manage uh, do our uh, liquidity management better and the technology goal, which is to do things more efficiently, uh, absolutely aligned. Um, and there's, there's you know, there's a clear linkage, uh, between the two and the, the business case is really, really clear. Now, do you have to spend a long time on this process? No. And in fact, how we went about this was, um, we did uh, a number of workshops, um, And um, we got basically um, all the ideas for the future state. We looked at all the pain points. we got all the ideas for the future state down onto what I call um, initiative postcards. Um, And these are basically hypotheses around what the future could look like. And what we do is um, we make the business people consultants for a day, and we we give them the task of going and asking them to find out from Google and white papers and anywhere else they can um, uh, w- you know what leading practices in their particular area. and this is what we did for AR and AP. Um, and we then ask um, those business colleagues to present to us as a project team um, as if they were the consultants and we were the customer. Um, and so it's very interesting because when they do that analysis themselves, they start to see what the art of the possible is. Uh, rather than having a consulting firm like us coming in and telling them what the answer is and them not believing us. Um, So having got our initiative postcards, we can then prioritise them by complexity and by business value. And from that, we come up with a roadmap. And from the roadmap, um, we come up with uh, a set of costs and a rollout uh, rollout, uh, uh, schedule, deployment schedule, and ultimately a programme. Um, and it's a very, very effective way. And it, But the, the, the important thing about it is that because the uh, prioritization is reviewed every um, six months, other things can come in and other things can move down. So it's a very dynamic process, but it's always aligning itself directly with the business strategy and the business goals. So I've talked a lot about that, but I can't emphasize how important it is because it's so different to how many organisations view their digital strategy. Uh, you know, the, the, I see countless ones saying, well, we must be more on the internet and we must be doing better with our e-commerce. And those are, we must be better on social media. And those are interesting things, and they're probably correct. Um, but being able to tie that very tightly back to the business goals and the business alignment is where I think a lot of these, um, uh, uh, these strategies fall down. You know, particularly, um, you know, um, uh, business understanding of the uh, of its core drivers, and in fact, we'll we'll talk about that shortly.
7: download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success.
0: So hopefully I've made the case for um, having a good strategy. Um, And then of course, once you've got your initiatives prioritized you will be kicking off one or more projects for each of those initiatives and those will change the organization's ability to deliver and so again that is not just we're going to put in a piece of technology if you're doing this right you will change the organization the skills you'll change people you'll change processes you'll change uh, the systems the tech You'll change the data. Um, potentially, you'll change the reporting and the drivers and KPIs and metrics. Again, if you're doing it properly, and you'll um, be looking at risks and controls and governance. Um, I have got it in the wrong order. Governance, risks, and controls, apologies, GRC, and the wider kind of security framework into which the, um, into which the uh, project will fall. Um, And so uh, you'll see that um, that there's a couple of other things in this definition of an op model like centers of excellence and customer experience and voice of the customer. And again, those are equally valid. There is no real formal definition of what an operating model is. And I define it as anything that is required for an organization to deliver on its customer promise effectively. So um, if it's a compliance framework that could equally be in a operating model um, as a business process or a um, or a, a piece of software. So does that mean that we can forget all about all the tin that's sitting in our data center? Well, the answer is no. Um, and again, um, there is absolutely always value in looking at your current portfolio of applications, um, and your physical infrastructure and your skills and 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 Um, and again in this context again I mean we um, um, the the client that we're working with at the moment um, we looked at the applications portfolio and we found that there were um, 200 applications uh, that will be impacted by the replacement of the ERP and the HR system and all of that was very interesting. And actually, through the analysis, we actually found that about 14 of them we were still paying for and they were completely unused. Uh, in fact, that people had stopped using them a number of years ago and nobody had realized. Um, and so, you know, it is important to make sure that your current portfolio of applications is absolutely clearly aligned to a business capability and that it's still valid and in use Um, because if you have an application that is in your data center it is using up your electricity and it's depreciating off your books it's got physical infrastructure and if you you know if you've gone to the uh nth degree extreme then you might even be replacing infrastructure for an application that you're not using um, so, you know, having that close eye on what your part of the jigsaw is, is really important. Now, again, in physical infrastructure, in many organizations now, unless you're very, very, very large, um, most organizations now have, have have gone away from physical infrastructure. Um, certainly over here, it's now becoming relatively uncommon to find a company having its own data center. Um, Usually it will have been outsourced to a managed service provider. Um, uh, uh, so um, the, the idea of managing physical infrastructure is much less of a concern. But again, you know, we still see problems in physical infrastructure during, due to lead times required for a, a managed service provider to install a new bit of kit to run this service. And I think that's partly why cloud is becoming so increasingly popular from the uh, adoption uh, because firstly, you don't have this huge lag in getting that infrastructure in place. Secondly, it's less much less costly um, to get cloud infrastructure um, added to an application as a um, uh, platform as a service or software as a service than it is um, to, to, to effectively increase your own hosting footprint. Um, and then of course there's the support as well and again if you're paying for support for applications that are un- not being used then that's clearly um uh, not not optimal um, but overall your physical infrastructure will be larger if your current portfolio of applications is not being used hundred percent so um, there's clearly some um you know some investigation ongoing uh, investigation needed to make sure that um, your portfolio of uh infrastructure and your portfolio of applications is all relevant um now in terms of current business and it skills of current business and it employees um it's important to know that um it's certainly important to know it from a cost perspective um truthfully um if you are actually going to do a transformational strategy around it there will be a number of um skill sets that will fall by the wayside um you know so um um having lots and lots of programmers um in technologies you know that are 10 or 15 years old will continue to be important until those applications and that have been replaced and are no longer in use um and then those skills are not going to be needed and so again in your Three, five, seven-year, ten-year plan. You need to be thinking about what that looks like and what that transition, what that transition approach is, and whether they, you're going to retrain those uh, employees, whether you're going to redeploy them, um, or whether you're going to release them, uh, and what that headcount transition looks like over over a number of years. And then um, the uh, fourth point on there is about architecture and points of integration. So we'll come back to this in a minute. Um, but architecture is becoming increasingly complex, um, and uh, points of integration have always been quite complex, but they're becoming more complex. Um, and um, so the Uh, So the skill sets that you need in terms of architecture and integration are probably a lot more pivotal to your business than they were maybe 10 years ago. And that's especially true of organizations that are adopting a mixed cloud and non-cloud strategy in their provision of um, business services. And then finally, obviously, there's data uh, forms and reports. I mean, I'm not really that interested in forms and reports, but I am very interested in data because most businesses cannot say where data starts, where it flows, and where it ends. Um, And they can particularly not say that when you want to take the the middle of that data flow out, like the ERP, and stick something else in its place. And until you know that, you can't do an ERP replacement, you can't do an HCM replacement, you can't do a CRM replacement, you can't do anything. Because unless you know what you're going to interfere with in your data flow, and how it's going to look when it comes out the other side, um, then you can't touch it. And I've known organisations that have come considerably unstuck by saying well, the middleware will sort that out, and we'll just uh, transform the data out of the erp so it looks like it was the same data as the old one and that strategy has in my experience never worked so if you've made it work please please tell us out, um, because because uh, as i said it's data is a particular problem in businesses quality is a problem and uh, data flow understanding is a problem master data management is a problem and those are common in every single business or or nearly every single business. Now, I talked about uh, uh, assessing current performance measures. And again, I'm, um, uh, I'm an old IT person, I've been doing IT since 1984, when I started on IBM mainframe. So I'm not against IT in any way. But I again, I think there's too much emphasis on IT looking at itself rather than IT looking at itself um, in the context of the wider business. Now, um, most organizations are uh, able to benchmark their own IT um, and the cost of IT against um, other organizations. Uh, We uh, do uh, uh, some some strategies, uh, uh, sorry, the strategies that we do usually take into account um, some form of benchmarking, um, uh, where we will look at, you know, the cost of IT as a percentage of revenue and we will compare that to industry, uh, to other IT organizations in the same industry, um, for, organ- for companies that are roughly equally sized and say, well, they are 2% in your 4%. Um, so what's, wh- why are you for, um, and then we do the analysis to look at that and the same is true. We do that with finance as well so we'll say well your finance costs you four percent of your revenue and it should be two why because you've got 120 people and everybody else has got 60. So those are the typically uh, what you'd get and then you go into the more deep dive which is around maturity assessment um, and around um, uh, benchmarking uh, the process based benchmarking etc etc to understand why the cost profile uh, wasn't meeting uh, industry leading practice so that's all very obvious. What's more interesting, though, is actually organizations the, some of the very uh, advanced uh, organizations are actually moving on to something called um, driver based rolling forecasting. It's available on um, YouTube if you want to look it up. It's called Beyond Budgeting, um, it's also known as um, and a lot of organizations work on a zero budget forecast. So you'll get 12 months worth of budget and then at the end of 12 months, that budget will be zeroed and you'll pitch for the next 12 months based on what you believe um, uh, you will spend in terms of change using last year's budget as a starting point. And Beyond Budgeting does something quite different. It says that you're going to have a budget to uh, two budgets. Actually, one is to run your run the run operation, which we expect to be broadly static, but improved on every year by whatever percentage point that is, two percent, one percent, five percent, whatever. Um, and we will measure that every quarter to see whether or not that budget is uh, the, the, the actuals are meeting our budget expectation. And then for the uh, business transformation change budget, um, again, it will there won't be a budget set at the beginning of the year um you will get a um, cash allocation out of a capital pool to do whatever projects are approved and then those again will be assessed each quarter on based on their outturn their cost value etc etc and the budget will be varied um, according to the um, according to, to, to the performance um, now, where this is, so in IT, this isn't terribly interesting because most IELT organizations already do um, some part of that. Um, but it's much more interesting in operational parts of the business because um, uh, a, a, it, these drivers should be directly aligned to the key business metrics. So, for example, um, an organization like EasyJet, uh, which is an airline, uh, if you didn't know, um we'll have seven key drivers of the business it'll have um uh uh, parking and uh ground costs it'll have um on route costs it'll have uh flight crew utilization and flight pay it'll have um revenue per seat it'll have in-flight services and it'll have add-ons gosh i actually remembered all seven this time um and each of those will have a particular target, but then every target that sits underneath it will be rolled up to one of those metrics. So if there's a cost in IT, um, that that cost will either be apportioned or it'll be directly aligned against one of those. So for example, the system that supports the electronic point of sale systems and the inventory management for the in-aircraft sales will be directly apportioned to that key driver of the business and so if there's a better cheaper more productive product then that's the driver that will it will impact and that makes it much easier for a business to decide what to invest in and how to manage its business without having this ludicrous process of saying at the end of 12 months right next year we're going to give you another 3 million thank you very much get on with it so becoming quite talked about in finance organizations um, wait for it to come down to you from 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 them because it's quite a different way of thinking. so we're talking about system I said I was going to talk about systems last and actually I am going to talk about systems last and I only going to probably talk about it for a couple of minutes. Um, you can have lots of different types of strategies. you can have a a big ERP solution. And actually, what we're seeing now is more in the way of uh, going back to unified platforms. So unified platforms were popular about 10 years ago. Um, uh, so I was in a tel- telco and they replaced lots of disparate systems for billing and CRM and um, uh, 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 ERP, sorry, General Ledger, and they migrated all onto Oracle. And then it became popular to not have everything on all in one system and to have a best of breed approach, which was similar to what I'd been describing um, with our client earlier, where they had AP uh, best of breed and then they had AR best of breed. Um, and now we're seeing the moves, the swing back again. And the reason that we see this swing is because um, joining platforms together with service oriented architecture solutions or middleware like MuleSoft or Dell Boomi or WSO2 is very complex and even though the salesman will tell you how easy it is that there is never as easy as they say it's going to be Um, and we've seen uh, a number of organizations get into quite a lot of trouble both trying to write the um, uh, the integration architecture and do the transformations um, and then with the cost so Um, For example, my experience WSO2 is by far and away uh, the most complex and difficult to write integrations for by several orders of magnitude. Yes, it's open source and yes, that's fun and exciting. But in terms of how complex and easy it is for me to implement, I don't want exciting, I want easy. and then MuleSoft, which many of you all know has been bought by Salesforce, is uh, actually a very, very good, great piece of software, um, but they charge by the transaction and the bills that come in every month or every quarter can make your eyes drop out, especially if you didn't know that's how much you were using it before you started and didn't negotiate a good contract. Um, and my personal favourite. I think I would call it the least ugly sister, if I was to characterize all of these, is Dell Boomi. Again, I've had success with Dell Boomi, but it's still a long way from being as easy to, anywhere, it is easy to implement um, as the the salesman uh, used to maintain. Um, So with the adoption of cloud and with mixed um, architectures, cloud and on-prem, then this middleware is essential to any business. Um, to be able to make this all hang together, I think, as as I mentioned earlier, my my sense is that we're going to see a drift back to unified platforms, but in this case, they'll all be cloud-based unified unified platforms. Um, and I think the idea of having a huge data center full of legacy systems will fall to a few, you know, specific organizations like banks and telcos um and i think the general organizational population will, will will move increasingly to cloud so look there we go that was um 42 minutes of uh, my thoughts on um where technology uh, strategies should be and how you develop one i happy for any questions or uh, give thank you very much
4: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks.
1: Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric. I'm here with Kyler and Parisa. And we just listened to that clip from Full Throttle and, and Stuart Robb talking about digital strategy. And Kyler, what were some of the thoughts you had or some of the observations from listening to Stuart?
3: Yeah, I think this is an awesome segue into um, from Brian to Stuart, just talking about the importance of overall business processes and the strategies behind them. Um, the one thing that Stuart really got into granularly that I thought was so interesting was data, and specifically his um, analogy to dead fish data, right? So if you were fishing downriver and someone was poisoning the river up at the top, then obviously all the fish you're going to catch are dead, which, you know, hilarious analogy, but also so true, right, when it comes to to data cleansing and what that looks like, and I know we've kind of Talked about different software systems, but Eric, I'd love some like top three tips on cleansing data or making sure that your processes are optimized before going into any digital transformation.
1: Yeah. So, on the data side, I mean, I think the first thing is to understand is to take an inventory of your data. Where is the data? How clean is it? What kind of cleansing do you need to do? Uh, You know, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, you know, mapping the data from your current environment to the new technologies that you might be rolling out. And that's where a lot of companies run into trouble because it's not always a one-for-one perfect match, you know, between the fields in your current system and the fields you're going to be using in your your future system. But I think even more important, I guess a third thing to add to that would be, you know, it's one thing to clean your data. It's one thing to map it and to migrate it over. But the bigger problem is that why did the data get corrupt in the first place. Usually, you know, a lot of organizations have dirty data. They want to clean it up before they move it to the new system. And that makes total sense. But you have to look at, well, why was it? Why was the data dirty in the first place? It wasn't because someone put it there and it was dirty. It's because the processes, you know, throughout the day-to-day operations were somehow corrupting the data. It's because people weren't trained on how to capture information or they didn't have a standard way of capturing it, or you didn't lock down the system tight enough to where only certain people could edit certain data, whatever the case may be. So you really want to make sure you have master data management uh, processes as well. And that should be part of a transformation too, so that you don't spend all this time and money cleaning the data, transferring it over to a new system that you just spent a ton of money uh, buying and implementing only to just corrupt it all because the people aren't using the system right or whatever. So when you lay your business processes and you define the business processes, you have to look at it, not just in the context of how do I design the software, but also how should the processes work? in a non-technological perspective as far as the human interface with the technology so that I am keeping the data clean and so that I have better information that I can get out of the system. So that's, I'm trying to answer both questions in one response. I, I don't know if that covers both the data, but I'm getting it a little bit into the process side of it as well with the master data management.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think well and to, go ahead, preset. I, I was going to say, and two on the topic of data,
2: sorry to interrupt, but also in the full throttle Uh, workshop, we had Daryl Crockett speaking about data security. And one thing that she mentioned that stood out to me was something that everyone can do as they are going through their transformation, which is classifying your data as you migrate it over. So you can kind of organize it and keep things a little cleaner, if you will, based on, you know, is this data sensitive? Is this data confidential, you know, and just classifying the data so that when you go back to build out your cybersecurity strategy, you know, which data you need to protect more, you know, where do you need to focus, et cetera. So, you know, the conversation around cybersecurity and specifically how it relates to your data is something that especially today should be top of mind uh, for everybody, given all the craziness going on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it it also gets into uh, data analytics and business intelligence and, and really just getting meaning out of the data, you know, so that it's not just data, it's actual information that we can make decisions on and make use of. So that's the other, the other piece of it too.
2: Right. I mean, what good is a software without data, right? It's just another software. <laughs> it's your data that makes it useful. So one other conversation too, that I want to explore beyond uh, what Stuart was talking about is is global strategy because when you have an international company where you have different executives leading up, you know, kind of like third stage, except we're not really product-based, right? We're, we're services based. But if you have, you know, a team leading your Asia Pacific area, team leading your UK area, your U S area, maybe you're in South America, you have all of these different branches, if you will, uh, I, ideally doing the same thing, but there could be differences in processes. There could be differences in, you know, how operations are run in each specific uh, country or geographical location. So my my thought was, if you're implementing a full scope ERP, for example, you know, how would you have that ERP accommodate the business needs when there could be various different business needs? I mean, could one ERP solve the 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 different needs in every geographical location or would you suggest maybe an erp for the americas an erp for you know asia pacific how would you approach that
1: well a lot of it comes down to a couple things one going back to the point you made earlier in this show in today's episode is the whole trade-off between you know one single erp system versus best of breed so if you have you know, single ERP system to drive commonality and standardization, that's great. But now you've put all this pressure on the local regions to now adapt to something that's very different, presumably, than the way things are going to be in the future. Um, So you have to recognize that there is a trade-off there. It's no easy answer. But I think that the bigger thing to consider is the, you know, you have to look at the culture of who you are as an organization and what you're trying to be. So, you know, if you're a, you know, if you're a big multinational that's grown through, um you know, organically, and you've had very standard processes all along, you know, that's going to make sense for you to have a single ERP system. If you've gone out, like a lot of organizations, you've gone out and acquired different businesses or, or set up new branches and let them operate fairly independently, then it's not to say you, you can't change that or pivot off that, but you just have to recognize that if if you do decide in those cases to go to a standard model, one single ERP system, it's just going to put a ton of pressure on the change management, even more so than you already had. So um, that's the thing you have to recognize is that's the hard part it's the technology. Sure. You could roll out a single ERP system. That's not, you know, that's not that much difficult. If, if difficult, it, it may not even be any more difficult than rolling out multiple systems, um, at least on the surface, but from a technical perspective, but from a change management perspective, it's very different. There's a lot, It's it's a very different scenario. And then the other thing is just the processes too. You have to really understand where you realistically can standardize and where it's more important in some cases to remain localized or independent, and usually companies end up in some sort of hybrid. Um, they, and, but I think the p- important part is be deliberate about what that hybrid is, and which ones you definitely want to standardize, and which ones you're intentionally going to leave alone and let uh, operate differently. And that's going to lead you down the path of what you know what's the right answer. Is it a single ERP? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. For some really large companies, like we have one client that's. Uh, one of the biggest steel producers in the world, and they have, I think, four or five different major ERP systems that they're using, and they're fine with it. They don't necessarily they don't want to change that because they like the fact that they're decentralized. That's how they've been successful, and so they want to bring it all together via uh, business intelligence tools. They want to be able to see and have visibility into all the systems, but they don't necessarily need each part of the business using the same system. So. They've done some consolidation in different regions and different parts of the business, but overall they've been fine leaving it alone. So there is no right answer there. You just have to have to match it up against where you're what you're trying to accomplish with it. And recognize that if you're making a big jump one way or the other, that's gonna create a lot of change management uh pressure. It's gonna put a lot more change management pressure on the transformation.
2: Right. That makes sense. And I mean when you're when we talk about digital strategy as a whole and and you trying to figure out your future state as it pertains to each element of your business. I mean, is it one over in that scenario? Like you're speaking about this steel manufacturing company. Is it one digital strategy for the whole company when they're decentralized like that? Or do you kind of empower your executives that's in each geographical location to create their own strategy that kind of rolls into the grander future state?
1: It's really both. I mean, it's, you have your strategy company wide that, is intentionally not covering everything. There are certain things that are left to the to the regions or to the local uh, business units or the local locations. Um, but there are certain things that are intentionally, you know, corporate-wide strategy. And in this case, with this um, client, the business intelligence piece of it, the analytics and business intelligence and reporting, that piece of it is part of a corporate-wide strategy. And the other part of it too is that they're also trying to act even though they're remaining independent they're they're trying to integrate enough to where they they're acting like one company and customers don't customers aren't paying the price for the fact that different locations and different parts of the business are operating differently. So in other words if a customer goes to one part of the business they should be able to buy products from across from across the business and not have to have totally different customer experiences. So um, as long as they accomplish those things the business intelligence and the common customer experience the rest of it is, is completely localized. So I think you can do both uh, for sure.
3: Yeah. And I think too, it kind of depends on like how much disruption and risk you're willing to absorb in that transition, right? I know Eric and team here at Third Stage work with a ton of merger and acquisitions, private equity firms that often come in and, and want to completely revamp everything and hire, you know, our team to say like, whoa, 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 like let's think through this big picture and, and the disruption that will cause to your overall investment within, you know, purchasing or acquiring this company. Um, That's a big, a big lens of our business too, in which we, we support those decisions for global companies that are acquiring businesses or investing in some way.
2: Right. So I'm curious too, I mean, we, we obviously work with companies all over the world, tell me a little bit about the cultural variances that you see and how it impacts a transformation project, whether it's internal to their team, uh, or even when it's working with us, you know, there's language barriers, there's customs that you have to be mindful of. So I just want to hear a little bit about the, the experience with working with say, clients in in dubai and and beyond you know there's a lot of differences there how how does it work how do you bring everybody together and just how do you approach it
1: well i, I think it's first of all important to recognize that that if you're dealing with a multinational organization especially you, you've got to recognize the different cultures and, and treat the cultures differently in the way you you interact in the way you manage the transformation so just as an example you know, we have clients in Asia Pacific where a common theme we see in the cultures for those organizations is there's a certain deference to uh hierarchy. You know, if you're a, if you're a higher up in the organization, or if you're an expert, the others in the organization are more, I don't want to say passive. I, I don't mean for it to be negative. It's just, they defer more to authority, whether it's organizational authority or expertise or whatever. And it's harder to get, um, to get active buy-in from that, that kind of group. So when you define a change management strategy, you have that, that approach is going to be different than in the U S where it's the opposite. It's, you know, it's almost the opposite kind of culture from that regard where it doesn't matter if you're the CEO or whomever, you know, as an American, you know, we, we will challenge you if you're the CEO or, you know, if you're an alleged expert, we're still going to challenge you. But that's not as common in Asia Pacific, and these are very broad generalizations. Keep in mind, I mean that's always a dangerous thing to broadly generalize a, a certain culture. But you see that often, you know that dynamic often. So you you have very different change strategies and ways of approaching the project. You have to you have to handle it differently um, in those different regions and against those different cultures.
2: Wow, that's fascinating, and I could see that as far as building out your OCM strategy and. If it's different, I mean, it's, again, it's not one size fits all. We always talk about how companies are also unique, but same with cultures. Everybody runs to the core. Everybody is unique and different. And it's interesting to hear, uh, you know, those those variances from, you know, just one geographical location versus yeah. where we are in our backyard.
3: How do you say ERP or digital transformation in Farsi? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> a That's bit. a good <laughs> Question. Hmm.
2: You know, I I'm so I'm fluent in Farsi. I'm Persian. For our listeners who don't know or were wondering, I'm Persian and I speak Farsi. But I would consider myself an illiterate Persian because I am only conversational and I can't read or write. Unfortunately, I don't know their alphabet and I don't know like giant fancy words like digital transformation in Farsi. So unfortunately, Kyler, I will. I'll go ask my parents and then I will let you
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cover that on the next episode. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I'll bring it back next episode. Yeah. we we'll just bring that back <laughs> understanding culture. And I think the cool part about the third stage team is we truly are. I know you see just us here um, in the United States. There is truly a global presence. Um, and even as Brian Lakaruba mentioned, having that industry specific and that global cultural lens is just so important. And so, and Eric, obviously you speak to this better than me, but if we have a client that has a huge cultural aspect, we will go find someone to help us understand that. It really is like a true immersion in the overall business. And I think that's the difference between third stage as a boutique agency, as opposed to throwing a cookie cutter approach and templates at an organization that it just doesn't match that type of thing.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, to your point about us having that global team, I mean, we, we have projects that are multinational in nature and we'll have team members, you know, cross geographic team members. So we'll have, we have a couple of clients now, especially with Europe our European office where there's North American and European based consultants on the same team because it's a multinational client and it just pro- provides both cultures, both perspectives um, to, to build a better service the clients. So it's, it's a good point. It's not just a matter of recognizing the cultural differences, but, you know, people in Europe, our team in Europe is much better equipped to handle those cultural nuances in Europe that I, for example, or others, you know, based out of the U.S. are not as as equipped. Right.
2: It's just the norm, right? It is. If you're living in it, then you know it pretty well.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's another dimension of what makes digital transformation so challenging and so fun at the same time.
2: I love it. Well, it's interesting to hear you know, all of these different perspectives behind building out a digital strategy and how that kind of trickles down into your software selection. So all really good information. Hopefully that's helpful to all of our listeners as well.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I hope this has all been helpful, especially for those that are earlier in their journeys or trying to learn more about what they're about to embark or get themselves into. And in, uh, between the strategy session with Stuart and the software evaluation and selection discussion with Brian. Hopefully we've covered uh, some good, useful content there for you all. So I want to thank uh, you guys, Parisa and Kyler, for being here again today. And thank you to the audience for listening in. And uh, hope you found this all helpful. And we look forward to seeing you all in our next episode of Transformation Ground Control. And again, we go live with new episodes every Wednesday morning U.S. time. So in the afternoon uh, in the European time zones and later in the evening in the Asia-Pacific time zones. So thanks again for being here. Hope you all have a great day and we will see you next week.